three, two, one. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to uh, this is episode two of Hobby Set Go, the uh, new discussion hobby sci-fi nerd oriented podcast. And uh, coming strong out the gate this week, we have, um, you know what? I think I'll let him intro himself. Uh, Stan, would you like to say, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Stan. Hi. Uh, I build model kits. I um, write for modeling magazines sometimes, and um, I've been involved with science fiction since I was about 17 years old. That, uh, yeah, that's... that's uh, and I should say, I'm now 67 years old, so that would be 50 years. Yeah, that's a long time to be a sci-fi fan. So uh, I'm expecting today we're going to have a lot of fun conversation about sci-fi, because... Um, I met Stan initially, um, I think it was 2019, I want to say, at uh, Annie Rivo, because you were, if I remember correctly, you were a judge there for GBWC. That's correct, yep. And uh, that was the first year I had actually uh, whipped up the confidence to actually put something in and enter, and uh, it was my uh, Ryan car at the time, and I remember you gave me some uh, really sound advice at the time, and uh, I kind of was like, yeah. This is the kind of dude I want to have on my podcast because, uh, yeah, you are the um, you're also the founder of Monster. I don't know if you I, I, I blanked. I don't know if you mentioned it. You're the uh, founder of Monster Attack Team as well. That's correct. Yeah, I, we, we um, actually back in 2019, the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Association uh, gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, I was one of three people recognized that year. And it's it's mostly because I start clubs uh, and I'm compulsive and supporting clubs. <laughs> So I, I started a club called Monster Tech in Canada, which is, was started in 1989. Uh, it, and a lot of us were building garage kits, um, which are at the time had just taken off uh, kits that uh, were being sculpted and created in people's garages in their houses. Uh, it's it starting in Japan and um, moving over to North America because materials had changed so that you could use uh, casting resins and rubber and create small runs of, of things that could never be model kits mm -hmm. in terms of uh, styrene model kits where you have to run thousands of them to make them cost effective. Yeah. Um, so, so we started club there, uh, but also there was a club called the Science Fiction Association of Victoria that I started when I was younger, and I've been involved in VCon the Vancouver Science Fiction Convention since number three for up to, I think it ran to about 40. It's kind of on hiatus right now. And uh, as I mentioned before, I, I've at 17, a friend and I, I was in grade 11, summer of grade 11, grade 12, we took the, the Greyhound bus from uh, Victoria to Toronto for um, the World Science Fiction Convention in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of been an obsession. Um, you know, basically just anything that's not real. Yeah. <laughs> Lost in fantasy, like we all do. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, that was, you know, part of why I wanted to have you on here is uh, I am also a huge science fiction fan. I'm definitely, I mean, I'm half your age and I've not been into it nearly as long, but uh, I like to think I'm a pretty big science fiction fan. <laughs> um, what would you say for you the most foundational for you personally like what's the what to you is your holy grail of sci-fi that's really difficult because it kind of comes with different ages and yeah stuff. so i mean when i was really young i was i i i, I read um 
Edgar Rice Burroughs, mm-hmm. um, like Carson of Venus, uh, uh, John Carter of Mars, mm-hmm. uh, David Innes of Pellucidar, and, and Tarzan, just by way of, well, Tarzan was sort of an associated character in those books. Yeah. Those are great books when you're like under 12. And, and they're still great books when you read them, but I think it helps to have read them when you were young. Yeah. Kept the nostalgia and adventure. My actual imprinting on science fiction as I got older, I mean, Dune is a fundamental book in my life. Yeah. I, I, I reread it before the Denny Villeneuve film came out. Yeah. And it had been a while since I reread it. And as, as I did, I kept going, oh, I think this. Oh, I think this. And, you know, <laughs> Frank Herbert had kind of sculpted some of my brain. Yeah. I never really noticed it. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, Left Hand of Darkness and Dispossessed, those books, um, I, I kind of imprinted, though, also on science fiction in the, the New Wave era. Um, you know, 73, when I went to the Worldcon, was right in the middle of that. So folks like Harlan Ellison and Michael Moorcock and just like, and, and of course, Moorcock uh, stretches over into fantasy as well. Yeah, so There's that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's, I can't pick just one. But I would say, you know, it's weird. It's like Burroughs, informed by the new wave, later on informed by cyberpunk. Yeah. You know, because, uh, you know, I mean, we live in, we live in cyberpunk central. I mean, Bill Gibson, William Gibson lives in, in town here. And he coined the word cyberspace in the basement of the UBC, um, you know, student union building. That's crazy. Uh, watching the video gamers. Yeah, he, he, he explained like, you know, the video gamers were playing, you know, stand up video games and their bodies were contorting and moving like their bodies weren't in this space. They were in some other space that was between here and the video game they were playing. Yeah, and that's cyberspace. Right. But yeah, it's kind of kind of cool that Vancouver is sort of ground zero for that. That's that's freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, that 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 is killer. Um Coming back, yeah, like I think Dune is is a it's a totally foundational piece. I mean, yeah, it is it is the space opera, right? Like it's, I mean, we could say or talk all day about how you know George Lucas ripped it off and everything because he did, right? But, yes, we could. But um, yeah, it's I I, uh, I I agree with you there. I think that's one of those um, that's one of those big kind of really foundational sculpting kind of works of sci-fi where you read it and you start to really kind of grasp what it is about the genre you love so much. Yeah, it, it 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 and it's that whole sense of I I like those big future history type things. I yeah. mean, foundation is yeah. similar and and you know predates it, but it it also has that long view of history. Yeah, sort of I, I'm big into that that concept yeah. as well. I like when when futurism is is it's not so it's not just um it's not just about like you know the future itself. It's speculative history, right? Like. Um, yeah, and, and I mean for Dune, there's a lot of religious. Uh, that basically, I mean the the danger of becoming a messiah is is like a central theme of that yeah. book. and and just that observation. I mean, it continues to be so relevant in the sense that it was relevant when I read it back in 1970, whatever. Yeah, uh, but it had been written in the early 60s, and um, and and yet it seems like it's more relevant than ever now in some ways um so it's it's an amazing book in that way mm-hmm. i think that's part of what makes science fiction such an interesting genre is it it it's it's very like how do i put it 
to some people it, it feels it feels very a very dating genre in the sense of you can go back and watch you know star trek tos and it looks old but right when you go back and read these older novels or watch these older shows and movies you you start to pick out things that because there there's that whole idea of looking at things looking at history through the lens of the future you start to pick out that there's a lot of stuff in there you're like this is probably more relevant now than it was when it was written yeah it it uh, and and some writers like herbert sort of structured things in such a way that there isn't much that seems dated in the in the future that's yeah. portrayed because it's such an idiosyncratic well-focused future future that it's not one where you go, oh yeah, that's not how it worked out. Yeah. It's so future and so, yeah. I mean, you know, like computers and things have. There's been a battle fought. So yeah. You know, that that is one of the most interesting concepts of Dune to me. Yeah. Is 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 like that where it's. I think this is a a sign of great uh, science fiction, especially. <clears throat> when you're dealing in, you know, the, the speculative futurism element of it, Dune is 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 phenomenal at this, and uh, I think a lot of my favorite science fiction works is it's the depiction of of technological growth as not right. being a straight line, because yeah. I think that's that's a common conception of like, oh, the farther we go into the future, the more advanced things are going to get, and I think yeah, especially seeing looking as far back as you know the the sort of the cyberpunk um, sort of era, where it starts to deconstruct that more utopian idea of technology is is a straight line you know it's constantly this curve that's going up yeah. and the... I, I don't know about you but i'm really upset that i don't have a flying car yeah they they lied to us on those ones well they lied to us about that and and, and how far we'd be in terms of space exploration yeah the flip side of it is though that's always interesting is no one conceptualized how advanced computer technology would be yeah so <laughs> excuse me it's not a straight line and in some ways you you don't quite anticipate where the the, the plunging forward part of it is as opposed to you know the, the space program for various reasons got got hung up yeah now maybe we'll see now it, it it seems to be there's a renaissance in terms of how much is being devoted to exploration and yeah. how it might be back in places like the moon but but Definitely in the 70s, there was this great kind of, you know, freeze, but it wasn't a freeze for all technology and computers are, are and, and computer technology is way ahead mm -hmm. of where it was conceptualized. So that things like the, you know, the even on Star Trek Next Generation, their their um, communicators looked a little, uh, you know, old fashioned. Yeah. So it, uh, it it's it's cool that way. I mean, the real world in science fiction, it's interesting how they interact. Yeah, you know, uh, but the the main thing is that you realize that change will happen no matter what, and it won't be quite the change you expect. Mm -hmm. And that's all. I mean, that's one of the great things about the genre. That's that's what I think that that in itself kind of yeah, it sums up the the point of the genre very well. It's a different outlook than you'll get from a lot of other types of fiction. I think. Yeah. Um, change, change will happen. Mostly, change is good. You, know, you have to be careful. Yeah. You know and uh, yeah. hubris and all that yeah um yeah for me i mean i i kind of think it was very similar i mean i i grew up watching um a lot of classic sci-fi tv like i it was like well, um obviously reruns right not like because it's funny it's it's funny i feel like you and i probably watched a lot of the same stuff when we were kids just for me it was all reruns right where it was like i i 
part of it was old shows like you know Star Trek TOS and the Next Generation. That was huge for me. Um, those shows were were really big and kind of shaping my outlook on on uh, science fiction and fiction in general, and kind of what I looked for in it. And um, other stuff like you know Lost in Space and stuff like that would come on from time to time. And uh, I think the other thing for me was uh, I was huge into Doctor Who as a kid. Right. Like like huge into it because. Um, I got into it when they like not not when they but I got into it because of the the you know it's still going on now right it went on hiatus for like twenty years and then it came back in two thousand five and I got into it and I was like oh I love this because it's like it's so it's so disconnected from reality but at the same time there's such a there's such a genuineness to the character writing I I um this is one of the I I hesitate how many times I might say how old I am you know as we're talking yeah. But briefly, the CBC ran Doctor Who, I think, in 65. Wow. After the first season of Doctor Who, because Sidney Newman, who was one of the production people at the BBC, had been from uh, Canada in the CBC. Mm -hmm. And so they struck a deal. So I actually, at whatever age, that would have been like nine years old, I guess, I uh, watched um, Doctor Who. I'm not sure how long it ran. It ran long enough that I saw an unearthly child. And, you you uh, saw an earthly child? Yeah, original airing in Canada. That's crazy. And up to the end of the Daleks. Up up to the end of the first Dalek thing. The I'm first actually, Dalek story. Yeah, yeah. When I, it, I'm actually sitting here. I've got a Blu-ray of William Hartnell, complete season That's two. so <laughs> sick. Right now, you know that's so awesome. Yeah, no, I I got into it. Um, I got into it when around the time, it was around the time Matt Smith was Doctor. Right, uh, it was right. near the end, but I I started when I started watching. I started watching from Eccleston, and then I got yeah. I got caught up on the modern stuff, and then that's when I was like, I want to go back and watch the classic stuff. And I love Tom Baker. I think oh, uh, Tom Baker's the best. He's so yeah. good. I think he's the best of any classic doctor. I gotta say, like, I he, they all have their quirks, but I don't know Tom Baker. I mean, he's he's often credited as having the best run, and and I kind of go back and I just rewatched a couple of his stories recently. I rewatched uh, Ark in Space. Uh, that's a great one. Um, Genesis of the Daleks. I think that's probably my favorite Tom Baker story, just because I mean it establishes Davros in such a great way. That even all this time later, you still see all of these subsequent Davros stories and Dalek stories still calling back to that one. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. Tom Baker, he just like. I, I, I kind of like the. Uh, there before there was any steampunk, but the Victorian Sherlock Holmesy ones, like uh, Seeds of Death and yeah. Bones of Wind. And, and those ones I particularly like just because Tom's character in those. We sort of do. I mean, he's always doing Harpo Marx via home, yeah. sort of, you know. Uh, and and so I really like those ones. I, I like the detective kind of, yeah, the Sherlock Holmesy aspects of Tom Baker. I, I I agree there. Um, I think that was part of what made his Doctor so fun was he had this great sense of character where he could kind of he wasn't always the same sort of. He was very multifaceted to me. He could tackle different kinds of stories with great ease. He he is. He, he seems like an alien at times. Yeah. You know, because of the way he plays the character. Um, he's eccentric. I, he's I, very eccentric. With, since it's models in science fiction, when I was in England one time, I went to Comet Miniatures and and was looking around there. And, and the guys there told me that John Pertwee told the best dirty jokes, though. That's uh, that's awesome. 
I, everything I've seen of John Pertwee in, like, interviews or any, like, secondhand material just tells me that he's just, like, probably the coolest guy ever to hang out with. I like uh, I like all the guys who were, I'm, I, of course, I'm a big horror movie fan. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of Hammer. And so people who had parts, Patrick Troughton uh, showed up in Hammer movies from time to time. Which ones um, was he in? Uh, Patrick Troughton is in Scars of Dracula. And now I'm going to blank and not be able to think of any more, but I know he was in more than just Scars of Yeah, because I remember seeing him in, in, in that one. I've seen that one. I know he's in... The, yeah, hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look that up quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, do a little research. I'm going to look up... Yeah, a little on-the-spot research. Um, uh, ooh, wow, okay, he's got his own wiki page. Um, he's hmm. in the Gorgon, apparently. Oh, he's in Curse of Frankenstein, apparently. I, I, I would not know. Oh, of course, he's the rat catcher in The Phantom of the Opera. Oh, okay. Um, he's in The Viking Queen, too, which is another Hammer movie, but not a monster. He's in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Yeah. Uh, the, the, fan, the, the Phantom of the Opera one, is that's my first Hammer movie ever. It's 62. It must have been like 63 when it was first out. And I was an elementary school kid, you know, in grade, what, one at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was like maybe seven or eight. It probably wasn't playing in 62, 63 or 64. And this little girl in the neighborhood said, said to me, I, I want to go see Phantom of the Opera. Will you go with me? And so uh, the first time <laughs> I went with a girl to a movie, it was really that's you know, so it, awesome. That was Phantom of the Opera. And parts of it were terrifying. You know, there's a line where the lead woman says, you know, he looked at me and it's if a hole was burned in my brain. And I found that terrifying. Yeah. You know? No, that, that would have been definitely pretty surreal to a first grader. Sitting here beside this young woman who I'm not going to say, ah, I got to go and jump and run out of the theater. <laughs> Uh, so I ended up, uh, you know, sitting through the whole movie and being, you know, somewhat terrified. Yeah. Uh, it's not that terrifying a movie, really. But, but No, but when you're a first grader, you don't care. You get scared by the dumbest crap when you were a kid. Did you ever have anything like, like, like anything that irrationally scared you when you were a kid, like wasn't supposed to? Oh, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know... I, I'm not sure that I, I, as a, you know, as a little kid and as a, you know, as an adult, I'm always watching horror movies and stuff like that. Oh my God. He's in Sinbad in the eye of the tiger too. I just, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm just looking at the film. I, I'm looking at it too. Actually. I just saw that. That means, that means both he and Tom Baker were in a Harry Haas and Sinbad movie. That's so, which is one's... Cora, the, the magician in in uh sinbad's golden voyage oh shit that's awesome yeah, apparently what be that the guys at the bbc went and watched that movie before they gave him the the, the job as doctor who yeah uh, which which is yeah anyway so that's so, so cool <laughs> Another fan thing. I gotta close this here, or I'm gonna just be talking about Patrick Troughton all night. Well, Patrick Troughton is. Uh, I'll, I'll let you get this. Again. I just gotta say, I, I love Patrick Troughton. He's so cool. He's awesome. he's, he's in my top five doctors okay. easily. Okay. That that I, I mean, I I was very much burned. I mean, that burned into my brain. Hammer movies. I yeah. Mean, my my neighborhood, I sometimes say, is um, Toho Films. Mm -hmm. Universal monster movies and Hammer 
Mm-hmm. Uh, little side trips to uh, Italy, uh, Mario Bava, people like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, Dario Argento. But, uh, but you know, the, the big three are Toho, Toho Hammer Universal. Yeah. Um, and so, it, anyways, it uh, as a young person, I, 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 I didn't flee from Phantom of the Opera, but I did take the, the Park Theater Manito- in Winnipeg, Manitoba, mm-hmm. uh, double bills all the time. For some reason, my parents got me to take my brother to see a double bill, which was Ma and Pa Kettle go to Hawaii, I think. I hope I what is, hold on, I, I gotta look this up. Uh, yeah, see if that's a real title. I Ma and Pa Kettle no. go to Hawaii. No. Something like that. And and Revenge of Frankenstein. And in the second uh, it's, piece, it's Ma and Pa Kettle at Wakiki. Ma and Pa Kettle? Sorry, I missed what you said. It's Ma and Pa Kettle at Wakiki. Okay, that's that's the title go. of the film. Uh, so that movie and uh, Revenge of Frankenstein. Yeah. Like My hero is Peter Cushing. I, I have Peter Cushing's autograph. Off the that's so movie. sick. <laughs> And, and and so Peter Cushing is besides Grandma Tarkin in Star Wars, which is what most people know him for. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in Hammer, he played Van Helsing. Oh, what? He was uh, in a lot of Hammer films. Well, he he and Christopher Lee were sort of like the go-to guys. You know, with, often with Peter playing the the, yeah. the hero and Christopher Lee playing the the monster. I just looked it up. He was in twenty-two Hammer films. Right. And, and and the thing that's interesting to me about them is I wrote an article for a magazine called Mad Scientist, which is a really nice fanzine run by a friend of mine who's a geneticist, so he really is a scientist, uh, by the fact that Peter played Van Helsing, um, you know, the ultimate good guy, very dynamic by Van Helsing fighting yeah. Dragon. Uh, you know, that, unlike some of the older stuff, you're Van Helsing's. I mean, he was horror of Dracula. He's the kind of Van Helsing that jumps up on a table, runs down, leaps onto the curtains, pulls them down so the sunlight's there, and then yeah. him, slaps them together to be a crucifix. Like, it's the action Van Helsing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also played Dr. Frankenstein, who is a truly evil. The, the, the Frankenstein series from Hammer, which runs to about, I think, seven films. I could quote them all, but you don't want to hear me going through them. So I'm going to say seven. There might be. There might be. Uh, we got time. <laughs> but oh, I can do it. <laughs> Frankenstein, Revenge of Frankenstein, Evil of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Created Woman. Uh, <laughs> uh, Horror Frankenstein doesn't have Peter in it. because I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Frankenstein Created Woman is like maybe the best title for any any movie i've ever heard of like that's okay well a movie that was very popular when it was made was a brigitte bardot movie called and this is some of these are almost before my time like this is just reading history it's not like i I saw these movies but brigitte bardot there's a movie called and god created women yeah at hammer they decided it was oh often they riffed on some movie titles for the comic so it was like you know so Frankenstein created woman was there. So uh, what did we get to? We got curse, revenge, evil, woman. Then we've got Frankenstein must be destroyed, five. And horror Frankenstein, but Peter's not in it. And Frankenstein and the monster from hell. So a total of seven with six with Peter in them. And the, the point of this article I wrote, which was called The Yin and Yang of Peter Cushing, is that on the one hand, he's playing Van Helsing who's this sort of ultimate character of good. Mm-hmm. 
other hand, he's playing Dr. Frankenstein, who in most of the films, he kind of waffles a bit in how evil he is, but he's ultimately evil because he has no conscience. Mm -hmm. But they're actually, they're, there's only a tissue paper of difference because they're both incredibly intellectual, incredibly driven, incredibly sort of uh, insightful, but one's good and one's evil. Yeah. You know, one's trying to get rid of the world of evil and one's trying to do good, but he doesn't care how he does it. So, you know, in the wake of trying to transplant brains and hearts and bring things to life, he's just, you know, people are being yeah killed left, right and center. But I think it's kind of fascinating that he's playing a very similar character. And I mean, Grand Moff Tarkin, to be fair, in Star Wars, he's pretty much the Frankenstein character that Peter played. So he, he had a good character, bad character. And also, since we brought up Doctor Who, good character, bad character, and these are not simplistic. They, they're, they're more shaded than this. But, you know, he also had this kind of avuncular uncle-grandfather character who sometimes is really a pain. And he did two Doctor Who movies uh, where they remade uh, the Daleks and they remade uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth as feature films and doc and peter cushing played doctor who in those and they're pretty dreadful mm -hmm. <laughs> because that particular character who is the kind of slightly befuddled ki kindly uncle type he just is annoying as doctor who. he's also annoying in um oh what's the burroughs one god we just keep looping it around and around uh burroughs at the earth's core i find him super annoying yeah. but he plays that character in um, Tales from the Crypt, um, and he's it's brilliant. Yeah. He you know? Um, so anyways, uh, so there we go. Doctor Who, Hammer, Peter Cushing. We're, we're getting through all my obsessions. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, clearly, you know, I haven't gone near Godzilla yet. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's going to be the all hell breaks loose moment. <laughs> I mean, it's the thing is, I, I yeah, I, I was... I never was like, I'm not clearly as into Hammer as you, but uh, obviously Toho is one of my main neighborhoods. Um, like we we did the you know we did the kaiju panels together at any Revo, and um, I grew up with Godzilla. I've seen just about every mainline Toho Godzilla film. But can I ask you a question? Have yeah. you seen minus one? Yep. What did you think, uh, dude? I I got chills in the theater. I, I got chills. Like I was I, I I remember the movie ended and I like my hands were shaking. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> we we live in a world and and it's unbelievable to appreciate this, where Godzilla is up for an Academy Award. I know! What in what world are we living in where he's he's literally been Oscar nominated? It's the best. I'm like, no, I, 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 God, I hope Minus One wins. Just because that is a genuinely fantastic film. Like that, I, I remember walking out of that movie and just thinking, that is like the Godzilla film I've waited my whole life to see. I, I was at the Rio last night because they were having a double bill of a 4K restoration of the original Godzilla from 54. And the black and white version. Oh, that uh, sounds Godzilla phenomenal minus one minus color yeah uh, and and it was a double bill i wish i'd gone to that either those two movies back to back but what was really phenomenal to me was the audience because they were full you know, there was a bit of seat shuffling so mm -hmm. i think 
minus one actually had more people, but both of them were essentially full. And the thing that was the strangest was our sort of master of ceremonies came out and said, well, I'm not going to do a trivia contest, but how many of you guys have, I'm going to give free passes out. How many of you guys have Godzilla shirts on? <laughs> and it's like four of us put our hands up. Yeah. And I cannot appreciate how strange this is because I have been in a lot of full theaters watching Godzilla movies, but the full theaters I've been in, everybody would have had a Godzilla shirt on. Yeah. Because like fan events, to, to be in a movie theater full of regular people who are watching Godzilla is just like incredibly strange. It's, it's yeah, it's a weird feeling, honestly, now that you mention it. Yeah, it, it's neat. But it's also one of those things where it's like, yeah, there were four of us. So, you know, we all, all gathered. Oh, I like your shirt. Oh, I like your shirt. <laughs> That's cool. It, you know? That's cool. Sort of like, yeah. You know, like because in Chicago. It's a real moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we I've helped put on for uh, 28 years uh, G-Fest in Chicago, Godzilla Fest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we have a theater there. We have this lovely old Art Deco theater called the Pickwick. And we've had, it's giant, so it's hard to fill it. But we've had some pretty full nights. But that, you know, everybody would have their Godzilla shirt on and everybody would be, you know, cheering for Godzilla mm-hmm. the whole time. You know, it's, 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 so it's not like I haven't been in a theater full of Godzilla. Yeah, you know, but, but this is the, the, yeah. this is the thing. These are ordinary people. These are just people who see movies and they applauded both of the movies. That yeah. They, which I like, you know, revival houses, you know, places like the Rio, which is why you should go to places. Besides, I love, I love the Rio. Play like, like Frankenhooker in a few months, you know, or in a few weeks. Yeah. You know, and a lot of our movie, like, what? Really? That's amazing. And, and uh, this movie that I'm not sure I have the right title, but I think it's 1000 Beavers. And it's like, I saw this trailer for a movie that at some mad fever dream where people dressed as beavers are engaged in the film what the and hell was, yeah no i just looked oh, this I, up I, this came out two years ago yeah yeah so it's, it's like called hundreds of beavers hundreds of beavers and it just was like that is so weird i'm seeing have... just the first image that comes up when you google this and this is telling me more than i think most modern art pieces could <laughs> it's just a guy so, being chased by by hundreds of men in beaver costumes exactly so we, we you know so yeah, places like the Rio need support because going and seeing a movie with people who get movies, it, it's it's just a great experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there a few, a, a month or so ago, I guess in October, when Goblin played along. Goblin, who s- scored um, a lot of, you know, like they, they did part of the score for Dawn of the Dead and Suspiria and mm-hmm. a lot of memento films and, and things. And so the movie they played was uh, Night of the Demons, and they played the soundtrack that had been composed by them for it at, live. And then they did like a set that was just other movie music. But uh, but these are great events. So places like the Rio, like they, it, before before um, streaming and stuff like that, before VHS and stuff like that. There used to be lots of revival theaters, and there was this ability to have these kind of great events. Mm-hmm. It's great that we got the Rio. So it, 
I don't know. I'm plugging the Rio here. It needs yeah, to be- for sure. I, I'll, I'll plug them any day. I, I get, I relish the chance to go down there. It's always a fun night. Yeah. We, we have, a, I don't know how this is going to turn out. A, a gentleman contacted me a while ago about the fact that living in town here is one of the people who was a, an actor in the green slime. And he's elderly, so I, I'm not sure what's transacted because there were reasons why I could not be involved in, in putting on a presentation. Uh, and I have to follow back up and still see if they're okay and they still want to do it. But we were hoping to get this actor who had been in the green slime and do a night at the Rio where we, we showed the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so fingers crossed, maybe that will still come off. Um, yeah. That could be but, yeah, that could be really cool. Fingers yeah. crossed, yeah. No, I um going back to what you said earlier. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Obviously, I'm 22, so I'm growing up smack dab in the middle of this generation where all of this stuff is slowly oozing into the mainstream. Yeah. Like, and it never was even when I was growing up watching it because uh, I got into Gundam. I mean, obviously, I, I feel like I I don't need to say it for anyone here, including you. My when it comes to my main thing, it's it's Gundam, right? As as a as a series and as a hobby and everything, Gundam, it it it's as a as a story, it's really connected with me, right? And right. we're living in a world now where anime is, uh, you know, over here in North America, it's now super mainstream. And I was talking with Half about this last week, where you can just straight up go to a party and talk around the coffee table with people and and anime can come up and you know you can yeah. bring up gundam and they're still not going to know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah it, it, it is oh we got we got a minute till it ends hold on do you want to just uh, stop it now and then just uh yeah we'll stop it now and restart right, here, hold on I'm pause the recording okay <laughs> we're back we had a we had a couple uh we had a couple technical difficulties but um i believe we were talking about um specifically anime and all that stuff and how you know this stuff okay. is oh can you hear me can okay. you hear me? Yep, I can hear you just fine. Okay. Um, I believe we were talking about how, you know, this is starting to all become super mainstream, and especially with anime, right, where it's something you call, like you can kind of talk around the dinner table with. Not dinner table, coffee table. But, you know, you can go to a party and you can mingle with people you've never talked to before, and, and this stuff can come up. But still, right. if you bring up stuff like, you know, Gundam and stuff like that, it's still considered a niche thing like a lot of people won't know it they'll know you know one piece and all that stuff but it's like right. it's the same thing with godzilla right where it's like a lot of people know godzilla because he's a cultural icon but it's not the same as having actually you know interfaced with it and and actually interacted with it right so now we're at a point where it's like to be in a theater like that and see all of these people who otherwise would probably have never gone out of the way to seek this stuff out are now watching you know, Godzilla, the original and minus one in this crowded theater. Um, it's 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 definitely a surreal, surreal feeling because we're in this era where it's slowly creeping in. You know, it's, it was never like, even, even when I was a kid, it was never really like that, right? Where it was like, it was something so niche because it wasn't, it wasn't readily accessible. Yeah, there's that part of it. I mean, part of it was too that Godzilla's all been a, a pop culture icon since 54 but because of his career especially in the I, I say his career i know he's an actor in a rubber suit but but he does you know the career the, the a, character has a life of its own yeah yeah a life of its own because of the the sort of the arc of that was he was kind of a a funny character you know in the sense yeah. that there 
was a kind of a, uh, I would say a gently accepting but derisive kind of thought about him, it, it, at least in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it was a man in a rubber. Is this very? Uh, shouldn't probably go on about things when I when I was a kid, but it's 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 relevant. There, was, there there was a there was a period where the idea that there was a man in a rubber suit was frequently held up to mockery. Yeah, and part of that was because of you know people like Ray Harryhausen, who I whose movies I love, but but who always went out of his way to explain well what we were doing was not a man in a, a rubber suit, so we could do something that was in a sense more realistic. We could give the Cyclops backward jointed legs, and yeah, you know, yeah, it worked. the The problem with that is, and so I grew up accepting that because I grew up reading like famous monsters of filmland. To you know, later on, things like Castle Frankenstein and Cinefantastique and, and stuff, and like I became a film teacher, so all of this was time well spent. You know, my mom might have been despairing about the magazines I was reading, but you know, I, it, it, it was good. It was good basic education <laughs> in film. But but um, uh, yeah, sometimes I worry about my credentials. You know, I, I you know I, I just finished a stint for seven years being chief examiner international baccalaureate film and it's like what are your credentials well i've taught a lot of film and i read famous monsters of film like uh so, they go right this uh, way sir you step on in this guy's an expert yeah, yeah uh but uh but anyways growing up in that it was kind of a false idea because it, the a whole idea that there's something wrong with a man in a suit first of all most of godzilla's films are okay but, but i mean the creature of the black lagoon mm-hmm. is a man in the suit uh, alien is, for the most part, at least originally, a man in a suit. Predator is a man in a suit. The best, all, yeah, the, all best the best monster, monster flicks are man in suits. Yeah, are men in, uh, you know, and it, it, so it was one of these. You know, it took me a while before I went. Pumpkinhead is essentially a man in a suit. It's like to to go. Wait a minute. Where did I come up with it? You know, where did this idea come from? That you know that, that this was a lesser art form. Yeah, there's a weird and, there's a weird perception around it. Even now, with to, with people today, you still talk to people and they they think about it. They're like, well, that's just a guy in a suit. I'm like, yeah, and that's not cool to you. The idea is, is that like I guess it's like, oh, you know, it's a man in the suit. But to me, that's always been the charm of it. Is that it's something that's and real it, and palpable. You know what I mean, right? Like, and, and there's an actor in there. I mean, one of the things my wife and I talked about before we saw Rogue One was I said, yeah, this is going to be the first time that Darth is not going to be David Prowse. Yeah. And when we got out of the movie, she said, you know, there's a difference. And and there is, you know, like yeah. Haru Onima, you know, in a Godzilla suit is not Kempichiro Satsuma in a Godzilla suit. They both mm-hmm. bring something different to it. Um, Kitagawa is different again. And and there is there is a performance. I, now, I'm not putting down CG type performances because now that there is motion capture, there's a performance again, mm-hmm. and, and there's a percept- perceptible addition made by the person who is doing the motion capture work. Um, you know, so guys like well, I mean, Andy Circus, of course, but you know, T.J. Storm and oh, what's Ellen's last name? The guy who is Kong. Oh, um, I'm, I'm blank, blank on his. Yeah. I just met him in October. At a, a convention in Windsor, Ontario, um, a super nice guy. But you know, the super nice guy. But when you meet him, you go, "Yeah, that's Kong. That's King Kong." <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, there's element, and I don't. T.J. Storm, who did Godzilla, like I mean, 
motion capture actors are incredible. I, I know I'm going way off base. Here. No, this is this is uh, this is completely relevant. I think because because we're talking I, I about think, the okay. perception of it, right? And you uh, can't talk about well, um, because the the idea of acting in a suit is not so different from acting in mocap. There's a barrier between you and the audience, but you bring a physical performance mm -hmm. to the table that that either sells the audience or doesn't. Mm -hmm. It makes them believe or, or not. You know, I mean, Rick Baker in an ape suit in that second King Kong movie, you know, at the time it was like it should have been stop motion. But Rick Baker in an ape suit is is also bringing a lot to the table. Yeah. You know, and and so it it is um, it, it's perceptible what those those people, you know, we t what I was starting to say was we had TJ Storm, who did Godzilla in a couple of movies uh, as a guest at at. Fest um, last summer, and it was one of the. It was first time we had a mocap actor, and what's incredible is, is such a physical performer when he's up in front of people, mm -hmm. uh, because you know what he deals with is performance in in a, like mime and stuff like that. His we give an award called the Mangled Skyscraper Award, and his perceptible, demonstrable joy. Getting that award and being, you know, feted because he was Godzilla. Like, I mean, he's a fan too, but it, it's just, it, it's, it's really was fun for everybody because he was so physical, you know, his yeah. joy was so perceptible. Yeah. Not saying he was acting out his joy, but because that's his sort of stock and trade, it was kind of more fun than some of the other people who've been given it, you know, yeah. like actors. Yeah, we're just coming up to accept it this time. Yeah. Uh, uh, hold on. Before you keep going, uh, I was talking about the award. Yeah. Uh, and and motion capture actors. I was going to say, it, 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 it it's like any other personalities. We the, the the award was given to Shinji Higuchi, uh, who was the director of Shin Godzilla and Ult Shin Ultraman and um, Attack on Titan one yeah. and two, and and he was the special effects guy for the three Gamera movies that uh, Shusuke Kaneko made. Mm -hmm. Um. So, so he was also great when he came up. He goes, he was doing like, "Oh, you like me? You really like me?" <laughs> you know, and 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 uh, you know, he was introduced as winning the Academy Award. And he goes, "Japanese Academy Award, Japanese <laughs> for best director." Uh, but uh, but he he's a lot of fun too. Uh, so, so it cool. just depends. But but uh, anyways, it, it's it's always it's always great to get to meet people like that. Um, that's one of the great things about conventions and about g-fest in particular so oh yeah meet a lot of the people who yeah have 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 getting to meet a lot of people i just completely never would have believed i would ever meet yeah um which was totally awesome <laughs> it's it's genuinely like it's crazy you've got such a big long list of just crazy names and i was thinking i was talking about it's really interesting in, in your case specifically because when we look at, you know, Toho and we look at Godzilla, the same way I'd look at Gundam, it's it's something that you get very infatuated with, but at the same time, it's so far away from you, you know what I mean? Because we're North American and that's in, right. all the way in Japan. So the way that we interact with it is a lot more scarce than it is with, say, something that is American, right? Like, you know, um, I don't know, like Star Wars or something like that, right? Or Star Trek or whatever else, those kind of fandoms. Because those are born and raised here, that, that whole culture. Versus like with something like Godzilla or Gundam, it's more of a cultural import, right? 
We're getting that you know, from somewhere that, else. Not having something immediately accessible, though, is, is part of the treasure hunt that yeah. makes it a compulsion. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, yeah, I, I saw King Kong versus Godzilla in, in its general release, second release probably, uh, as a double bill in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Come Fly With Me, it was so much an event for me. I remember the movie that was playing with it and after that i i i that's so long ago that i stayed to see the movie twice i went to the manager of the theater i said can i borrow the phone he said sure come on in you can use the phone i phoned my mom and while he sat there i said mom i'm gonna stay in the theater and see the movie again <laughs> and, and hung up the phone and the manager said that's fine kid just buy candy <laughs> uh, uh, and you know, and saw the movie twice, and obviously it made a huge impression because I, you know, at whatever age I was, like nine years old, I guess, no, seven years old, you know, I, I, I was driven to confront the manager, use his phone, and phone home, and phone and home, home, be like, I got, yeah, you see that, and there's that I gotta moment see this again. where it clicks for you, and you're like, thing. this is life changing, like this is gonna be, and you just kind of know, like, oh, this is gonna be the rest of my life now, isn't it? Huh? It, it's weird, and and. The thing about it, coming out of that theater, it's not like I saw Godzilla again for a long, long time. What happened was I started reading the monster magazine, yeah. you know, monsters and stuff. And I would see pictures of Godzilla. And because Godzilla was a suit, sometimes he didn't look quite like Godzilla. And there were other mysteries, like originally the movie that's now Godzilla's Counterattack. The original title of it was Gigantus the Fire Monster for legal reasons that they did didn't have rights to Godzilla mm-hmm. as a as, as a, a title. So so these various mysteries of well this looks like Godzilla but is he? Yeah, no, and I can imagine photos, that back, back then it must have been crazy. They sort of drive you forward in 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 you know so as a kid I went in grade 8 we went to Osaka World Convention so 3 weeks in Japan. So I'm the little nerd kid who's in the Japanese books pulling out you know books hoping i'm gonna find some godzilla books and and i don't know if you've ever heard of sonorama books but basically there used to be books that came with a little floppy vinyl record Mm -hmm. Uh, and and they would they they originally were going to have things like news and famous composers and stuff but what they found is they worked out really good for kids books and so japanese special effects things tokusatsu had a lot of these books devoted to them. So they would come with a floppy record that maybe had the theme from Kamen Rider and an episode and a bunch of artwork inside. So I discovered um, these books that I brought home that that basically had Gamera, Godzilla, Ultraman, Gappa, uh, X from Outer... Gulala, Gulala, um, mm-hmm. X from Outer Space. And, and Godzilla I was familiar with, but the others I wasn't. And and you had weird things like the multiversal crossovers. So there's artwork in one of the books. I've I've got all these pictures framed in my house now. You know they were on thick cardboard. Uh, and and uh, it, what you know one of them is King Kong fighting King Ghidorah. Yeah. You know. Uh, so there were these sort of crossovers with Godzilla. You know, and I didn't know Ultraman. I didn't know Gamera. The other thing that we, not far from where we stayed, there was a candy shop. And the candy shop showed, it's weird because, I mean, 
I, I'm nostalgic for Showa Japan because I went there in 1970, and then I wasn't back until 2005. But it, you know, like I, I, it's just a weird mental attitude. It's like a Japan that doesn't exist anymore, or that sometimes exists down one street where I'm in Japan. I go, wow, I feel like I'm back in Japan. You know, it's yeah, modern Tokyo. Um, oh, nostalgic for it. so we were going to buy, you know. We we were staying in an Olympic village and we were having a fight with a volleyball team across the way. We were buying these little fireworks that you could make into stage rockets and shoot them across the concourse and hit the windows on the other side. Enough about that. We were kind of Canada's bad will ambassadors. To <laughs> That's just that. that uh, hold on. Let me get that straight. So repeat that to me again. You were doing what with fireworks? Okay. So there were these little fireworks and essentially they were a firecracker, but they had a little rocket engine on the end and some fins when you lit it they'd shoot up and explode yeah and, and we we discovered you could cut them in half pick one on top of the other and when you shot it it it, it would ignite the next stage we basically invented two stage rockets it would it would in, you know, light the next stage and and that would get far enough to hit the windows on the other side the volleyball team was saying you know and so we, there was this little you know friendly war going on between like an icbm guys. war yeah, an ICBM war. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, and you know, I I don't want to say some of the you know I know some of the guys were like standing on overpasses shooting rockets and cars going by down below, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm gonna just say I didn't do this. Uh, we blew up a room once with fireworks. <laughs> That's but awesome. Basically, one of these guys bought like I don't know eight packages of firecrackers and and used the wick bits to create one enormous wick and and while he was talking he had a cigarette lighter god this makes us sound awful and <laughs> and and he wasn't looking and all of a sudden all of us are like pointing and our eyes are wide he goes what what he looks and he's got like this bomb in his hand and he's lit it by accident oh my god so at the last minute he throws it up in the air Whomp! we all lose our hearing and the curtains are on fire <laughs> <laughs> so did you i'm people, sorry you know what that makes me think of great from grade eight to grade twelve, and you know, graduated first year of university. Some of the older guys grabbed the curtains and threw them on the floor. Oh my god! Started stomping them out to stop the fire. And I remember one of the poor chaperones came in and goes, "What? What's going on? What's going on? We need to. We need to do something." <laughs> one of these older guys goes, "We are doing something. That's We're handling that's it. crazy. Help us stomp this fire out." <laughs> that, that's so, ridiculous. Yeah. So, how did I get into this horrible story? I, we were talking about finding... Hold on, before... you know, oh, Okay, I know, I know what that point yeah. was. Before we, before we do that, hold on. What was important to me about this typical, beautiful Showa-era candy store, which was like the bottom layer of somebody's family house, you know, and they sold candy and fireworks and stuff in the, you know, in the main floor. Yeah. Um, they also sold... For like 20 yen or something that you you could get a little booklet and you would tear there would be an envelope that was bound in you would tear the envelope off and you would pull out what's called a bromide uh, it's a it's like a it's like a postcard yeah with a picture from a movie you know so i came home with all these pictures from destroy all monsters camera versus tiger which was the movie that was actually out when we were there mm-hmm Ultraman and all this other stuff, you know, and I kept going back and buying more pictures and stuff because it was like monsters, but they were monsters. I wasn't 
aware of in some cases until I was there in Japan. So for me, it was, you know, if I guess going back to what this was all about, the mystery of these movies was a big part of becoming a fan. The fact they were inaccessible, I mean, I was the kind of kid who was wanting to learn about Universal and Hammer, but I had famous monsters and I had Cinefix and I had not Cinefix, but Cinefantastique mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Castle of Frankenstein to learn about those movies. But with the Toho movies to a large degree, I think a lot of us, and even back in that, the 90s when J.D. Lees was starting G-Fan, which is still running as a fanzine now, um, it, he has a banner that says the world's longest running fanzine. I think it should really say the world's long longest running Godzilla fancy because yeah. there actually are fanzines that have run longer, including Little Shop of Horrors, the Hammer fanzine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the the point being, trying to find out about the mystery of these movies was a big part of this, mm-hmm. you know. And JD often said, I mean, he just put. I, there's two big watershed events in my Godzilla fandom. One was because I was reading Famous Monster Filmland, they had a feature in there called Graveyard Examiner. It was actually edited by Mick Garris, who is a director, and has directed a lot of Stephen King movies and, and miniseries and stuff. But he was running the Graveyard Examiner, and it was a place where people were doing fanzines, list their fanzines, and there was a fanzine called the Japanese Fantasy Film Journal. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, that was done by uh, Greg Shoemaker. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, but Greg Greg lived in Ohio. And remember, dutifully, like, wrapping my little Canadian quarters up in, in <laughs> Kleenex so you couldn't tell there was money in the envelope and sending him, like, 50 cents to get these magazines. Canadian money, I don't know what they did with it, but he was very kind. Copies <laughs> 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 of the fanzine. So that was my first connection, you know, with... with Japanese fanzines and, you know, reading letters or seeing art from people I know now, you know, later on. Uh, and then um, I think Greg ended that run in sometime in the 70s. But their Japanese giants picked up from that. Uh, Ed Godswachewski did that. And Ed was going to Japan as part of the, the business he did. Mm-hmm. But he was taking time when he went to Japan to go and visit filmmakers. And... Um, then in the 90s, uh, JD Lee started uh, Fan Magazine. So those fanzines were partly, and, and other people were writing for things like cult movies. Um, it was partly an ongoing research project to figure out what we could find out about how these movies were made. And, and I don't count myself as a big part of that. But I do think it was super significant. People like Ed Godswachewski, Steve Rifle, uh, Greg Shoemaker, they found out tons of stuff. And and they ended up writing books and and doing documentary films. To some degree, I think even Japanese film fans came to value people more because of the kind of oral history those guys had done. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Finding out there were people like... uh, Mr. Inoue, who was a designer at Toho, was kind of like, you know, after Aiji Tsuburaya, Mr. Inoue was sort of like everybody's senpai. He was the one who who got everybody, taught them how to, you know, design and create, you know, miniature effects and, and stuff like that. He was really beloved. And, and his 
I think his work might have been forgotten, if not the fact that, first of all, North American fans found out and started publishing things. And that led Japanese fans to find out more and publish things as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of, it, I, I, I don't feel I'm a very significant part of, of that particular thread of fandom. I've more been involved with running conventions, but I, do, I am very proud of those guys because I think they preserve something that might have been lost. Uh, if it hadn't been for fans, yeah, you know, and that's true of film fans. And you know, I mean, I mentioned Little Shop, the Hammer fanzine. I mean, um, it's been going since the '70s too, and there's just tons and tons of material in there, in terms of research and firsthand recollections and and stuff that has saved the details of of how that work was done. That's uh, I mean, I'm a film teacher, so like that's important for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to be part of fandom because there is some things to be really proud of in terms of what fandom does, you know, from a kind of a research um, and, uh, you know, not just as social, that's important too, uh, but from a, a kind of a building a sense of history. Yeah. So. It's super important because, yeah, especially back then, media preservation was not taken very seriously. Like, that's only been, I think, a thing people have really started to only only in the last, like, recent while. Because there's a lot of instances of, of hell, like, big budget films from, from Hollywood and, like, even the 90s and 2000s where they just would not preserve things properly from them. If you listen, you know, like I'm a I'm, I'm a physical media collector, mm-hmm. and and one of the wonderful things right now, which is weird in a way, is that a lot of public domain stuff that has never been in good shape has been taken and rescanned, and good copies have been made of it, mm-hmm. um, even though they're public domain, so those copies can be stolen. Uh, but but the the point is that among that stuff are people like. Tom Weaver, like Tim Lucas, like all these guys who who have made a study of these films doing like commentaries and stuff like that. And it, it's preserved a huge amount of history that's really kind of significant history. And, and also it's led to the preserving of the films. And, and you know, I mean, and, and there are titles that, God, I'm really going to feel here. Like, you know, um, there's just a double disc from Film Masters of Giant Gila Monster and... Uh, killer shrews mm-hmm. and those movies have looked like muddy schmeary messes when you actually see them as they should have been presented when they were originally in theaters maybe better than they were ever presented in theaters. Mm-hmm. you come to a whole new appreciation of those films as films and how they work because when when something it is true at japanese films too when you know because i didn't see godzilla for so long after the first encounter in the theater a lot of godzilla films i saw for the first time on television and one of the things that was a problem was that of course they were all shot in scope toho scope widescreen process and because they were monster movies people who you know the telecine guys who were transferring the print they didn't really care so when you saw those movies on tv sometimes you got I mean, literally monster toes on one side and monster toes on the other side mm-hmm. because they not, had not pan and scanned to tell the story as well as they could because they didn't care very much. 
Yeah. So it wasn't till I started going to Japanese video stores and this is VHS days. God, I'm old. Uh, and renting Japanese VHSs that had widescreen presentations where I went, right. This is why I love those movies because they 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 are these widescreen movies with these huge model sets and 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 you know actors you know composed to look good in these giant model sets and and they just didn't look like that in pan and scan i think that's one of the reasons i mean godzilla i mean there's movies like godzilla versus megalon and godzilla versus mega godzilla there's reasons why godzilla was kind of a clown kind of a good guy clown i honestly if you don't see those movies in widescreen and that really makes them look a lot a lot goofier yeah yeah you know yeah so so yeah anyways so it's it's wonderful to live in an age where i mean watch something like you know little shop of horrors which i didn't even think was funny until i saw it recently remastered and it's like oh it's it's hilarious it's you know i mean it became a clearly it inspired a Broadway musical and became a movie based on the Broadway musical. But actually Charles Griffith's script is really funny. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that the presentation was so bad whenever I watched it, that it, it was hard not to you know fall asleep. Yeah. So it is really great, you know, that, that so much is preserved and it's being preserved with stuff like commentaries and th- commentaries, by the way, are great when you're ma- building model kits. Cause you oh, can yeah. put them on and listen to them. Well, you know, uh, well, well, you're 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 working on something, so it it because uh, you're that way you're only t- would... taking audio information, right? You don't have to keep looking. Yeah, at watching for the most part. I mean, there's some connection to the film. Yeah, my friend Richard. I, <laughs> I wish they were treated more serious. They are quite often, but my friend Richard Pusatari is doing the commentary on on All Monsters Attack. Which is the Godzilla movie where it's it's all in the mind of of uh, a, a little boy who's oh, imagining um, going to Monster Island. Is that uh, is that Godzilla's Revenge or is that that's with Gabara, right? Yeah, Godzilla's Revenge. It's really yeah. all monsters attack, is what it's the Japanese. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Godzilla's Revenge was the English title. Godzilla's Revenge, and and so Richard is doing the commentary, and at one point he's trying to talk about. I think it's stock footage from Steam Monster where there's um, there's Migs appearing yeah and he's trying to talk about the megs and stuff he goes oh i screwed that up he says it's a sound guy can we stop we'll, we'll just stop and try to pick that up again because <laughs> I, I was trying to time it better and the sound guy goes i guess we got to stop now but nobody cares <laughs> you know? and, and it's like, like you know here's a guy who's done all this research and you know and it's it's one of the lesser godzilla movies like i richard got it because nobody else wanted it they also gave him later on camera super monster which is the gamera you know comp film, oh it's you know, the it's compilation like a, like a film ah, yeah the one that's like a like a just stock yeah, footage yeah. movie yeah. Yeah. richard is my hero because he will do commentaries on those movies yeah he's a super guy too but but you know you can tell like you know like he's out there researching and he wants to time it out with the image and stuff like that and the guys who are recording are just like whatever you know mm-hmm. sorry yeah yeah yeah, no, there's but, um, there's a huge history to it. So, like, we were even talking, I mean, going back earlier to when we were talking about Doctor Who, I think that's one of the most egregious instances of, of poor media preservation, right? Like, 
Um, oh, that they actually got rid of they they over they they wrote over that the they straight up would just yeah. tape over yeah tape over the the previous episodes and obviously there was that warehouse fire at the BBC too and the um I don't remember when that was a seventy. Uh, but yeah, there was that between that and the fact that they would just straight up and they, they didn't even care. Like they would tape over stuff. They just threw some in the garbage because, um, I don't know if you've heard about this, um, in the last while, but, uh, a few people have come forth basically saying that they used to work at BBC and, um, they would straight up just throw a lot of these old tapes in the garbage. And, right. um, obviously, you know, these people were, they were concerned about the preservation of the actual media. So they took these these Doctor Who tapes home, and um, they've had them ever since. But they've they've not released them because BBC still, you know, will they will fight over the intellectual property rights. It's like they don't even care about this being restored. Like they right. they still don't yeah, care, yeah. right? Like it's they just like they're just like no, don't touch our shit. And I'm like that's that's ludicrous to me that there could be such a a, a low emphasis placed on something, no matter what it is that people put all this effort into and that so many people care about, right? The rights thing is, um, it's con- I and and there's a reason for it all because people also put money and sweat and blood into things, and there should be some kind of payment. But the problem is, because of that situation, often it means that something's going to be forgotten because it's not worth it for some people mm-hmm. to. I, I met um, Sam Moskowitz, who was a science fiction editor and a fan and a, a guy who. Um, yeah, he did a lot of conventions because he had been very involved in the very beginning of the history of, of science fiction fandom. But he had a copy, a film copy of um, the BBC did an adaptation of Isaac Asimov's The Caves of Steel with Peter Cushing as the main character. And I, I said, holy crap, you've got the film of that. He goes, yeah. I said, is there some way you can transfer that to tape to make sure it's got doesn't get lost and he said well I, I i don't want to do it because they don't have the rights to it yeah god knows what end is up i mean he's long passed away now but you know the the idea that here's this adaptation of this great novel by you know asimov which probably the bbc didn't really have the wherewithal to do perfectly but i don't even know if they have a copy of it like you know since that time i've been going like you know did he ever check did they ever you know actually find out because yeah. it it's like that I, I don't want that to be lost. Yeah, no, you know, and, and you, have you, you've never seen that, correct? I've seen photographs only. Yeah, so you've never even seen it. And it's like that that, that idea is like, it's it's insane to think about. We're like, oh, here is this whole, whole, was it a series or was it a movie? It would have been a series on BBC. Yeah, so here's this whole freaking series right here of this 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 asimov classic with like peter cushing in it and i can't watch it because legally if this guy makes a transfer of it he might get in trouble yeah yeah and it's like that the it, most it is, thing on the planet i mean it is i, I get kidded for collecting physical media sometimes but but if you you know recently like galermo del toro and um Oh my God, I'm blanking. Um, I'm a, 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 a Batman, Christopher Nolan. No, no. Have both have both come out and said, "No, you guys are preserving film history by collecting physical." Oh media. yeah, for sure. Well, here's the thing: because, is, is um, 
like you may have heard recently is like all the retailers are going to stop stocking physical media now, like all Blu-rays, yeah. like, cause it's all digital, but it's like, you get that we're, we're steeping more and more to the streaming age. And it's like the, the truth is just becoming, it's like, Oh no, you pay for this service, but you don't own any of this content. Uh, it, it, often rights will mean that some of your films will disappear. Yeah. And beyond that, I, I was I was at I had supper with some friends the other night and they they had a complex streaming system that included you know uh, satellite uh, and ability to track down you know uh, movies you know online and yeah. stuff and and so we just went uh, you know I suggested a few titles and the thing is I forget how many we looked for yeah but I think four four five or six and we couldn't get any of them. Yeah. They, they were not exist. They, they did not exist in the, you know, and I know a lot of stuff does, but they did not exist in, in any fashion that they could be watched by. Yeah. by us. That's, that's the but most annoying like, part of streaming by far and large. It's just like, especially if you're someone with niche taste, it's like, I want to watch all this stuff, but there's nothing I have access to it on. And, and the way it's programmed is it's just, okay, all this stuff is here. Now there may be programmers who, you know, are going to do the same kind of thing. It's like it, when I watch criterion channel, you know, quite often they will have the disc extras for Criterion up as part of what you can watch, mm-hmm. you know, on that channel. But it, it there's just a lot of stuff that's missing, and there's a lot of stuff that people don't realize it exists even, you know. So it becomes, it becomes a it, – it will be interesting. I, I suspect, you know, physical media will be around because – even though a lot of stores have dropped it, there's it's never going to go. Any, it's never going to go away. It's the same yeah. same it's reason we're like, seeing a resurgence in in you know vinyl and stuff like that. Vinyl. It's going to be like high end collectors audio. You know, it's like yeah, I, I've noticed that the prices have been going up a little bit depending on what you're looking yeah. at. Um, but but uh, but anyways, yeah, I mean it, that the idea that you can actually go out and watch some of this stuff. And it's been preserved. I, I worry that streaming will. I, I'm worried that stream because a product is being made. So I mean, I recently was watching, say, you know, some of Mario Bava or something from Italy, and somebody had to go out and find that obscure movie and find a print and, and remaster it. Mm-hmm. And I, I have my questions about okay, and it becomes a product that can be sold, you know, by like Aero Video or Severin or something like that, you know, but. Uh, Will the same thing exist if a streaming person is just looking for more stuff to stream? Yeah. You know, it, it, are they going to go, oh, well, we should really have a good copy of Enza Macabre, you know, like because Barbara Steele's in it. You know what I mean? There's a whole bunch of it's like there's reasons why certain things are pursued, even though they might be really, really hard to get a good print of. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, so. Here's to physical media. I hope it continues, yeah. even if it gets more obscure and more, more, um, you know. It's it's going to turn into about a, model kit. Oh yeah, you're right. I was gonna say it's gonna turn into a into a um a, a secondary market geared experience where it's it's going to get more focused. You know what I mean? The same way we've seen these amazing remasters from Criterion and stuff like that. It's it's. As the general audience moves on to streaming, then there's going to be obviously. Yeah. I mean, Arrow. I mean, Arrow has a streaming service. Yeah. You know, so I'm buying a lot of Arrow stuff, but I also like the streaming service because there are some titles 
I'm curious and I want to watch, but I don't want to own. Yeah, that's that that's is one great. thing I like about those the services offering yeah. is the ability, like where you it's like, oh no, they're 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 like you look at like yeah, Arrow, Criterion, like all these places, they're actually really invested in the preservation of it too because it's like they have it all up here for streaming but then they give you the option to own it you know it's not just like they're saying you have to buy this and this and this you get a sense that there's a genuine want and desire to preserve the 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 original thing right and it's not just like oh i gotta i gotta sell you to this in whatever format is most efficient for me to do so in monster tag team canada we've been doing monster movie mondays over at my place Mm mm-hmm and and one of the things that came up was um, Coffin Joe. I don't know if you know of him. He's a Brazilian uh, horror director star. He's a character, sort of, you know, like he's played oh, by yeah, Coffin Joe. No, I know Moran. Coffin Joe. Yeah, yeah. So so at, you know, I realized I didn't have a box set. There was a hundred dollar box set coming out. But, but it was available for streaming on Arrow. It's the same materials because it's Arrow's box set. Yeah. And it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, it was really fun for us to watch Coffin Joe, but I don't need to own Coffin Joe. Yeah. I'm not going to go back there <laughs> all that often. Yeah. Unlike, you know, something like, you know, Godzilla versus The Thing, which I'm going to obsessively watch probably once a year, you know, yeah. for the rest of my life. You know, that's something you know, where you're like, I-, I can shill the money for this, right? Because I'm going to get my money's yeah, worth yeah. out of it. Yeah. So anyhow, it um, it is an interesting. Oh, you still there? Yeah, I'm. I'm here. Sorry. Suddenly, suddenly, my. I guess I hadn't touched anything on the computer. Suddenly, it blanked, and my screensaver. No, the Earth yeah, just, uh, Aliens have taken over my my uh, my my setup. Oh, so okay. anyhow, uh, the the uh, yeah. All right, yeah, you made a good point. We actually haven't talked about any any real model kit stuff, model so kit. I'll 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 ask a first question. Um, what was the first model kit you ever built? Oh no, that's interesting. The first model kit kit I ever built with my dad, who was helping me, mm-hmm. was um, a Japanese Zero. Um, it was. I guess we just found it in a store and it was like, okay, so we'll build this. Uh, as I recall, it would have been my choice. I don't think my, my dad helped me with model kits, you know, because there was the glue and the stuff. Mm-hmm. I was really young. But after that, we definitely did Godzilla and he helped me with the first Godzilla kit. That's the first Aurora one. Yeah. And then I know two or three model kits he helped me with and then I, I would build them on my own. Godzilla was right there at the beginning. Of course, I'm of the era. There's a whole bunch of us. And it, and it actually goes for, I would say it goes for two or three generations. It's mm-hmm. not just one generation. Uh, who, who got started on Aurora Monster Models. Um, it's true of a lot of the Japanese guys, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I talk to Yamada, Takuji Yamada, who's like the, you know, he's a model builder, but he's like the, the uh, oh, God, I'm going to blank on the name. The, but he, he like he does a lot of he does Gundams he does monsters he does historical things but but he's he's the he does a lot of um, kind of nostalgia pieces you know that are just models where he sculpted the figures and they'll be like you know there's one called Days of Plastic Modeling yeah and it's a kid on the floor building a model and the parents are sitting there watching TV he's like the Norman Rockwell of Japan a lot of his 
stuff is like nostalgic, you know, three-dimensional depictions of life, you mm -hmm. know, when he was a kid. Um, but I, I, now I've gone off on this tangent and I can't remember other than Yamada where I was. You were talking about Aurora. Um, that Aurora, Aurora Godzilla. Yeah. So I, I know from talking to Yamada that he, he loved those, but one of the ways he learned to sculpt was he couldn't afford American model kits. So, you know, he was, he was trying to sculpt them and stuff like that. X plus right now in Japan who, who, you know, really did started their business in terms of repainted expensive vinyl figures yeah because they're such fans of models they have started doing styrene plastic models and and they're in boxes that look like the aurora kits and they have instructions that are like the aurora kits oh i mean and so these guys are a couple you know yamada's only slightly younger than me um it's, it's odd i get to this age and i always think oh yamada like that's master yamada he must be here's my senior and it's like no he's 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 a couple years younger than <laughs> god i'm old but um you know that it, it i mean the the gentleman who runs x plus he's probably in his late 30s maybe 40s mm -hmm. and he's clearly been influenced by them too and that's partly because aurora started in the 1950s i think with the first frankenstein kit right about the 50s 60s you know time I, I i think kong and godzilla came out in the early 60s um and and those stayed in production through the 70s and aurora fell apart but other companies picked up their molds and ran with them you know so you had and, and in, if even gave themselves names like polar lights instead of aurora yeah you know and and so, so they've been around for lots of people to cut their teeth on and, and inspirational, you know, such that when Garage Kit started in Japan, I mean, there's a company called Billiken. And Billiken um, is actually named after American Cupid doll. Uh, they were vinyl doll collectors, and they decided they wanted to do monster kits. And so the first one they ever did, and everybody was doing resin at the time, pouring resins that would kick off inside plastic molds and stuff yeah. like that. So, so at Billiken, the first thing they do is the Metaluna Mutant. And the reason from from uh, this island Earth, he's I I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but he's like a bug headed mutant character that is bred to do labor by the you know, people on Metaluna uh, in this movie, Universal movie. So. Dave Cockrum. Oh yeah, no, no, no. The the the, Met, the Metaluna with the big brain, right? Yeah, with the big brain. Yeah, classic, classic monster. Dave Cockrum of of X Men fame actually worked for Aurora and and drew a bunch of kits, proposed kits that were not made, and one of them was the Metaluna mutant. Another was the Fly. That kit's just come out, but Billiken decided, oh, for our first, we should do the Metaluna mutant. Even a company like Billiken was doing like Aurora kits, essentially. And mm -hmm. and the big thing that happened with Billiken was they, they did a resin kit, but the mold tore apart after about 40 pulls, which is not unusual because pouring resin into rubber molds damages the molds and eventually pieces get stuck. And eventually you have to, you know, do another mold. Yeah. Um, so what Billiken did, though, is they were doll people. They went, this is nuts. 
we can do these like we do dolls. We'll take a copper mold or vinyl in and it will never hurt the mold. And so um, that they started doing vinyl model kits. And, and honestly, we've never really looked back in a sense for kaiju people. Yeah. There's a lot of resin kits out there, but there's an awful lot of vinyl. Yeah. And, and that kind of dates back to Billiken and, well, there were vinyl toys before that, but but I mean the point at bringing highly sculpted models in a vinyl yeah date, dates back to but we're all basically we're all Aurora kids we're all monster kids my 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 family was really disappointed because we would go to conventions every so often and I bring everybody along and and they thought you know Dad was weird but <laughs> you know Dad was kind of unique. Then you go to a convention, and it's full of people who grew up in the 50s, the 60s, really between the late 1950s to the the early 70s, mid-70s. That's the monster kid generation, you know? And, you know, so I'm, I'm a card-carrying monster kid, and my kids were totally disappointed. It's like, you're all clones. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of you, and you're all, you know, Karloff, Lugosi, you know, Cushing, Lee, Godzilla, Kong, you know, like, you're just, you know, clones of each other. And it's like, yeah, to some degree, that's true. It's a, it's a historical, um, it's a shared heritage. Yeah. Basically what happened is in the late fifties, universal released all their classic monster movies at, at a package to TV called shock theater. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of really bad crime movies in that package too. And a lot of television stations, Got somebody who was like the newsman or the weatherman to dress up as a vampire and present those films on Friday nights. And all these kids grew up with that from the 50s on. Yeah. So, you know, vampire and Goulardi. And, 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 yeah, I mean, now we've got still got, uh, who's been going for a long, long time, uh, but Svenguli. Svenguli, you know, he here, is my goat. Yeah. I, uh, uh, you know, in the. Go ahead. I was just gonna say no. I like that. That was for me because yeah, he's one of the the few people who still kind of keeps that tradition alive. So for me, growing up, he was super formative to getting into into Godzilla and yeah. all these kind of movies. And I think he he definitely was a huge part of bridging that gap between you know me developing this similar taste palette as you, right? Because hey, I'm not sure I would have otherwise. Like he was a huge part in it as he would put you know wrote like he would put the original Rodan on Mothra, Godzilla, and, like and all he, these classics. He, he has- some of his jokes are pretty bad, but he has those sections where he's talking about who the actors are and stuff yeah. like that. And so it's an entry point where you realize people made this, you know, and, and there's a history to it. Well, you know, in the Pacific Northwest here, there was a guy called uh, The Count who was on Cairo's Nightmare Theater. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then CTV had a, a an opposing horror movie thing that started a half hour later on Friday night. So... Nightmare Theater was seven thirty and did two movies, mm-hmm. and and CTV was starting at twelve, and so as a kid when I was young, you know, I had to fight my parents to let me stay up and watch that. <laughs> On it's too late, you know. It's like no, but it's it's like Frankenstein. How yeah, can, I've never seen Frankenstein, so um, you know, and Mom, eventually please, I gotta watch Frankenstein. You don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, people who, yeah, it's like streaming you'll never have the joy of it's 11 o'clock at night and you think your parents have fallen asleep and you sneak out past their room and you listen for a second and then you go over the tv and you turn it on so low 
and it's not going to wake them up, but you can hear it. But, oh, wait, at this time, there's not cable. It's an aerial. So you have to open the window and go out on the upstairs patio and take aerial and turn it around so you can get reception for the, the station that's playing the horror movie, which, by the way, the other station, you need to turn the aerial different direction. And you're by yourself. <laughs> You can't see the TV, so you have to take a wall mirror down and put it against the chair and, and be outside the wind, turning the area, looking at a mirror to see when you've got reception and not waking your parents up. And and there's a certain joy in that memory that nobody who streams will ever have. Yeah, no, it's too it's too <laughs> simple. Like you, you earned that, you know what I mean? You earned that Frankenstein. Yeah, it's like a badge of courage. You went you on know? you went on this Metal Gear Solid espionage mission and you defied your parents and you saw that movie that changed your life. You know, I, I brought back Gappa, the Trifibian monster. Yeah. And and it's like I sometimes I think my parents actually were awake and they just didn't bother. They didn't you care. know. I, <laughs> You know, it, it, having been a parent, you know, in hindsight, I sometimes think, ah, oh, no, they couldn't have possibly not known that I was, I was up, but, but perhaps they didn't. Anyways, it, it, uh, it, it's silly, but it's kind of like, yeah, I, I had to fight for my monster kid card. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. a, there's a charm that comes to it in this, like, like it ties back to what we were talking earlier about. It. There was this, there was a scarcity to it. There was a mystery to it, where it's like the moment yeah. it's not. It's the same thing in storytelling. It's the same principle. It's like the moment it's not all given to you right there at your feet, when you don't get everything you want, that's when you want more. Right. You know, you give it a natural, you give it a, a taste palette. You got a hunger now. You're like, I want to seek this out on my own. And I think I wouldn't be such a huge fan of Gundam if it was something that felt right. so open and closed book. It's something that I've been very passionate in in watching over and over and, and wanting to learn more about what goes into making it and reading all these interviews and there's all oh, Japan, right? So I have to go out of my way to really dig up a lot of this stuff. And it's the same thing with I, you as I, a kid reading reading Monster Funland. I'm going to say exactly the same, though, with Gundam Kids in the sense that certain hobby stores back in the 80s were starting to bring in Gundam, you know, and it was like, okay, I'm fascinated because they're, they're mobile suits and they remind me of Heinlein and Starship Troopers. Yeah. But what are they and what's the story? And as it turns out, there's a connection between Starship Troopers and Gundam. But, but uh, they, the, um, trying to find out the details is always one of the things that becomes part of that fascination with the journey, I think. Yeah. You know, how, you know, it used to be, got a set of hobby japans that goes back to 1989 and lately i've been thinking you know maybe i should stop collecting them because for a lot of the time that i collected those magazines could not find the model kits that were in them yeah in north america or if you w did you found them four years after the magazine so it was that was partly a mystery too now when i look at hobby japan and i i definitely buy too many model kits You're like this is coming you out know, next I month yeah, or, I, since I usually get them two months late because I get them through Diamond Distributors, uh, I, I look at the top ten and I go, oh, I got that. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know? No, it's, so it's, it's crazy being able to look at a hobby magazine now and see, be like, oh, I, I have like most of these kits yeah, right I, here. I know where to get this, you know. And yeah. so, it, again, it, it might have passed. What we, it was really good when I interviewed Yamada because I was able to go through all those and get pictures of his dioramas and pictures of work he'd done. And and so when I was talking to him, I had, you know, like a, a huge slide set where I could go through and we could talk about it. But other than that, I'm 
looking at all those heavy books and going, yeah, I wonder if anybody wants them because <laughs> I think I'm, I, I, I think it's a different world. I no longer have to worry about yeah. not knowing what's going to come out. But with the adventure. Yeah, it's an adventure too. I think the most fun of it, looking at those magazines, it's like, yeah, it's not that that sense of, of adventure and discovery doesn't elicit those feelings anymore because it's like, oh, it's unfortunate because it's like I saw that on Instagram like a month ago. You know what I mean? Like, like the I moment know. something gets announced, they want everyone to see it, and because of the internet, it's like you know, exactly. it's just in your feed, you get everything tailor made yeah. for you. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. there is still a fun in coming to see that publication come together because it's like it's not just new products, right? You see people's builds and stuff like no, that. Oh, it's, it's, it's inspiration, and it's it's it's, it's just everything you want kind of in one place, and it's physical. You're That's interacting right. with it. I think it's the same reason we build models. You know, it's just we like that there's something out there yeah, physically physical. that we can interact with. There's something palpable to it, right? Like this, yeah. there's a there's a physical element. Same way you'd love a magazine, right? And just going through there and seeing some of the crazy stuff people built. Like, I was reading through uh, some scans of some old Hobby um, hobby Japans, or I think it was Hobby Japan. And I saw something in there, and then it just set me ablaze, where it was somebody had scratch-built the Mahiru from Turn A. And that's one of, like, the coolest mobile suit designs to me. It's, like, the big, it's got the big dome head, the bug one, with the huge right, dome right. head and the and the crab like the crab claw arm that's like a laser cannon and the big shield the big uh, like shield on its shoulder, and I was like that's I, I've wanted a kit of that thing since I saw it and I've seen I guess this guy's scratch build it. I'm like I'm getting all these ideas from looking at how he did it now and I'm just like oh my god I can't well do that. I mean that's the joy of of the magazines you know is that it's it's not just how to although that's a part of it. Again, now there's YouTube, so you can always do that. Mm -hmm. But it's it's the inspiration of seeing what other builders do, and and how they do it, uh, because there's a lot of things that are unique to each builder. I, and going back to Yamada, you know, like that the whole way he designs, he he kind of designs from the ground up from his emotional memory. You know, his most famous kits not kits of moments in films or anything they're moments from life yeah you know and he kind of imagines an emotional moment and then figures out a way to do it in 3d and i've been lucky to know a number of people you know uh hiroshi sagai was a good friend too he passed away again far too young in his early 50s but he he he, he did things like he was on one of those japanese competition shows and and it, where you had to build five different model subjects and they would give you these subjects and people would get eliminated and stuff they they have people vote and, what a crazy and, premise for a show absolutely crazy like, i would that we I, need more stuff like that nowadays like that, that i would uh, no, that I, up. Yeah. yeah yeah so he was he he, he did the fall of the berlin wall oh. and it was basically he sculpted all these original figures you know to be part of this you know historical you know, significant, but he was a wonderful guy. I mean, we used to have him to G Fest quite often, mm -hmm. and and he would, he 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 taught, he designed a lot of toys. He worked on a lot of Tokusatsu films. Um, but he could he could sit and take questions from an audience, and in an hour, he would sculpt like a bust of Gamera, um, Shin Godzilla, you know, head, you know, and he would he would sculpt the thing with a camera so people could see how he was sculpting but he would he would if it got too quiet he could more questions you know <laughs> and and i was lucky enough to go to wonderfest 
at his invitation. And he was teaching at Osaka Arts University at the time. And so what he did with his students, um, I was a great teacher. I could tell he was a great teacher just from the, the people that were there. He would get his students were doing 3D sculpting to all make products. And they would have a table at Wonderfest. Where they were selling the things that they had made in his class. Wow. And totally amazing stuff. And, you know, it was just, I, I mean, what was one of the greatest experiences of my life was being at Wonderfest with him. And he would basically go, time to meet Shinzen. And he would take me over to this really <laughs> great dinosaur sculptor, Shinzen. We'd meet him and stuff and go back and go, free time, you know. And, and It's like and you're being so kept would, on a schedule. Like, this is a class field trip. Yeah. Like it's. <laughs> and I would, you know, sit with, a, you know, his students. And it was summer in Japan, so it was hot. So I'm the I'm the sweaty gaijin yeah. guy, and 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 a lot the, you know his students a lot of the students who came to Wonderfest it's this you know ten young women you know and his co teachers so there's who is a woman too so there's all these young women who are there there were guys as well but you know and so the sweaty gaijin is sitting there and they all grab fans and I've got like all these girls standing around me fanning me and it's, <laughs> it's both perverse and wonderful in some way <laughs> they were they. Were, they were so sweet. And then, and then, you know, Hiroshi would come back and time to meet, you know, uh, oh God, uh, Yuji Sakai. So we go over to see Sakai. And, and at one point Hiroshi was giving a speech and somebody was standing there and going, I know that guy, I know that guy, I know that guy. But yeah, he asked the students, was he, you know, Hiroshi around? And, and they said, no, you won't be back for a while because he's talking. And and as soon as the guy walked away, I went, that's Kao Yokoyama. That's the SF3D oh guy. Oh, my God. All the sf 3 you know, and it was just, it was an afternoon like that where I kept meeting, meeting people who I'd only seen. That's like crazy. I couldn't imagine meeting Kao Yokoyama. Yeah, yeah. Well, I unfortunately I didn't remember till after he'd left. And and <laughs> the thing is, you know, Yoshi helped me. You know, uh, Hiroshi helped me translate. So it, I, in in the case of Yokoyama, I would just been you know. I mean, when I met Yamada, it, what I did was like like I'm not worthy. You know, I'm, <laughs> out. I'm not worthy. And Yamada's going. You know, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not worthy. And, and had a really nice talk with him because Hiroshi was there to help. But with Yokoyama, it would have just been embarrassingly like, why is this Westerner bowing to me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. Yeah, well, like, it, it was kind of a great idea. We like, we, I've just realized we kind of going on a wild minute where it's like, I was like, um, I should probably clarify uh, because I feel like there's probably a lot of people uh, listening to this who won't know a lot of these names, right? Because because this is like, there's a difference between being in this hobby where it's like, oh, I build kits and stuff like that, versus like I know the I like I know the names of the people who sculpted these, right? But for those not in the know, um, Koyohiyama is the creator of Machine Krieger. Um. It's a uh, very... It was originally at F3D, so that's yeah. why I yeah. bring that up. But, uh, but it's not Machine Krieger, which is, uh, if you don't know, it's an alternative Japanese sci-fi um, model line where the whole idea of it is, is very, like... Um, it's very it's this very, like, grimy, desaturated, very kind of mashed-together sort of look where because of the original models he made from kit bashing um, yes. and it's just a true testament to how creative 
a hobby and an art form that scale modeling can be because if you see like even some of the more simple ones where if you look up machine and krieger that's um machine and like m-a-s-c-h-i-n-e and then krieger like german but um if you look up machine and krieger yakult bottle and you even see like that's when you kind of hit that point where you're like oh i'm starting to think about this on a on a more three-dimensional level where it's you're not just seeing things for what they are you're starting to see shapes and how they can fit together and create a larger profile and stuff like that right and that's that's like i I remember that was such a early on into my scale modeling career when i started looking at that stuff like that old school modeling kind of days where it wasn't all there for you you know what i mean like you build a you build a a gundam moderoid something like that now all the work is put in for you by the manufacturer it's all color separated you got full articulation accessories the details are exquisite the proportions are usually spot on it's not like that in the 80s right because you had essentially it was one color it was covered in seam lines the proportions were wrong it was missing details the molds had imperfections and stuff like that so you just had to be creative in order to turn this into something beautiful yeah, there was a lot of work in reshaping things so that they were ac- screen accurate uh, as opposed to, you know, toy accurate sort of thing from the manufacturers. Yeah. So, you know, it is, it is an art form. I mean, it's a hobby, but it's also an art form. People are creating 3D art, you know, and, and it is, I mean, that's one of the things, which it changes how you view the world. Like I had never, until I had been painting for a while and building for a while, I had never had the experience of looking at rust on a truck and going, yeah. oh, how could I create, how could I recreate that rust? No, know? it's a, it's and, a life changing thing. Yeah. If you, you look at a lizard or something and go, look at the iridescence in that scale. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do I do to get an effect like that? And so you see the whole world in a different way. And, you know, and I think it's really, um, I think it's really important that everybody working with your hands, working with paints, working with things like that. I think it's very fulfilling. It's, yeah. You, know, you want to, I mean, um, there's all kinds. Of- you want to attach yourself. Like you want to find some artistic core to yourself because once you get in touch with your artistic side, it changes the whole way you look at the world. Right. And it was a scale modeling for way, me because yeah. you start to notice yeah, yeah. everything the same way you would, you know, photography, you start to understand it doesn't matter if it's photography, if it's modeling. That's a great thing about modeling is there's so many other spheres that can encompass it, like, you know, sculpture, photography. Now now there's the whole digital front with, with you know, Blender modeling and 3D printing and stuff like that. There's this whole frontier to it where suddenly you start learning all these skill sets and everything just starts to look different to you. You look at everything in your day-to-day life, you start to notice texture, you start to notice composition, you start to notice color, right? Like lighting, all these things because you're now thinking about If you're about building it. dioramas, for instance, you know, yeah. you're, you're, storytell- you're blocking, you're storytelling, you're using composition. There's a whole bunch of visual skills that you use that, that I mean, it just makes you aware of relationships. These are universal components that you'll find yeah. in any form of art, no matter what you're doing, because yeah, those right. are those are a core part of how we perceive the, the universe, right? The world around us. It doesn't matter if you're building models, if you're a painter, if you're a cartoonist, if you're a filmmaker, you're going to refer to all of these elements and you'll learn it through all these different means. And just like doing it through modeling, you get such a great grasp of a lot of these things, especially texture and, and composition because it's such a three-dimensional thing, right? It's, it's, it's totally, um, life changing. Um, I remember I had a very weird experience back in, I 
trying to remember the, when exactly it was. I'm, I'm guessing it's the early 2000s, but I'm not entirely sure. I was sitting downstairs working on something, and I got a phone call. And um, the guy introduced himself as, as one of the people from the Vancouver Art Gallery. Mm-hmm. He says, well, we've been, we've been inviting science fiction writers in because we're going to do, do this show on cyborgs. And so I was wondering, uh, do you have Locutus of Borg? Because we, yeah, we you told me the story. Oh, <laughs> science fiction writers say hey, you've got a house full of weird stuff. I got yeah, I got Lucidus, Robocop, uh, <laughs> yeah, Terminator, T eight hundred, T one thousand. What do you got? I got them both. What, what are you looking for? And then he goes to uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. It's like, uh, no, but I know where I could get one and build it for you if you want. Yeah. And then it was Major Matoko from Ghost in the Shell, and the other ones were Akira. Actually, the Akira pieces I suggested, and then it worked out well because the the guest speaker at the the Vancouver Art Gallery had invited to open the thing was was uh, involved with talking about Akira. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I ended up doing six pieces for them, and and that was the first time I had stuff in an art gallery, which is a really weird weird deal. Cool. I mean, they they. On opening night, we went to the gala, you know? Yeah, that's and, and that's crazy. Said, the guy goes, contributor and artist in his own right, Stan Hyde. My wife laughed and said, yeah, right, artist in your own mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but it was, I'm, I'm being toured around the gallery by the, the you know, the, the person who put it together. And what do you think of the display here? What do you think of the lighting and, you know, and stuff like that? And I've got six pieces in this thing. And it's very weird, you know, to like take your parents you know, and I'm in the art gallery. You, you want to come around with me? I'll, yeah. You know, and and you know, it was it was you know, uh, I'm in a show with uh, Picasso and Henri Duchamp. You know, yeah, that's like that's ridiculous. Very weird. On I couldn't imagine level. that. I mean, I, I can kind of imagine that. that. I have I, I have been in that scenario before, actually, but it was in a much smaller capacity where I was. It was a local art gallery, and um, I managed to get a couple of my. Uh, I, I used to do a lot of um, uh, forced perspective stuff with my models and photography, so I got right, a few right. pieces in a local gallery at that point. It was not not nearly as as courteous hey, as having being look, reached out to. Right? I'm going to tell you what I tell everybody. See, I used to be very big on considering myself a craftsman. Yeah. I think craft is a very good thing, but but I went through this situation when for a year, more than a year really, because that that went on tour. So my my toys were sending me money uh, as they went abroad. They would send me some money back, um, my, which I told you know was happy to tell my mom. You know, like yeah, my it wasn't all for nothing. Do, look, look, they, they're sending me money now. You know, uh, so they they there were at least two other shows where there was some payment involved. Mm-hmm. But anyways, that the the main thing was that there were a lot of people who I knew, you know, who were whatever art teachers, artists, who goes, well, yeah, you you got stuff in the art museum. They go, yeah, and they go, but you're not an artist. <laughs> and at first, I did my usual craftsman thing, yeah. but after about four months of that, it just went. Cause it went on like, yeah, it yeah. It was like, no, I am an artist. If it's, well, why am I in the art museum? You, then? you are an artist. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're engaged in this, that's art and, and you don't have to apologize by being a craftsman. Exactly. You're, you're, you're an artist. 
you know, I'm not claiming I'm a very good artist. I, I haven't been invited back to the art gallery, you know, either than, you know, I, at one point I served a purpose in a particular narrative they wanted yeah. to establish. But, but I, I, I think it's good that we remember that what we're doing is we're being artists. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's inherently art because you're putting yourself into it. Yeah, you're, you're creating you're making something. making a reflection and, and, of yourself in, in that regard, right? Yeah. Even if it's just through something else you like. You build things because they are reflections of ideas that you have within themselves. Even if all you do is build a diorama. Even if all you do is build a kit and paint it. Because the, the things you do to it are not like anybody else's approach to that. Um, so it, it's like, nah, it, it's art. I, I think especially for us, when we're not trying to just simulate reality, sometimes modelers really get into, okay, I'm just it's trying to... It's a huge to, part of it. It's a huge yeah, part of it because the, when scale modeling was conceived, right, with like cars and stuff, that was right. the, that was the focus. It was it was creating a a all version of, yeah, of yeah of a big thing, but as particularly when we're building things that never really existed except in films and mm -hmm. stuff like that, we we have a tendency to be a little more open to yeah, let's be creative with with how we do this, and and it uh, I don't mean to be putting down the other guys because all the uh, one of the things I learned right away was every you can steal from everybody. Oh yeah, you can you it's can steal connected. from shipbuilders. You can steal from military modelers. You can learn about you know uh, weathering and stuff like that from everybody. You can learn about issues and you know that. It, so it it's another thing where it, it, you know, it's interesting theme we're developing is go and find out, run and find out. You know, it's like one of the things that makes you obsessive in this way. It, movies and models is. Okay, so how did how did they do that? How do I do that? Why is it important to me? Sort of, you know. And you try to find out what, yeah, what, you know. So I, I would say that's true of both things: of being a film fan or and being a model builder. You know, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. There's there's this um yeah when you talk about it, it's like the, again the the objectives. It's just that because that's one thing I think is beautiful about scale modeling and the fact that it, it we've really seen it become an art form is the sense that there's such a variety in terms of vision and objective. You can do completely different things in it now. It's like everything from being you know a military model or wanting to recapture a scene but do it with the utmost accuracy to well, being yeah. a, a you know a, an out of box gunpla builder who's just like I want to have a cool robot on my shelf to being. You know, when we start to get into this, yeah, like what you said, we get starting to get these things like science fiction and fantasies. There's an element of it removed from reality, and that's when subjectivity and and taste will start to play into it way more because you don't suddenly that's that obsession can't exist in the same way because it's just not there, right? That obsession with I, realism. I, yeah, I was gonna say that you know, there's all kinds of different approaches into like. You know, at G-Fest, we have a model show. So just off the top of my head, you know, there's a gentleman, Marcellus Winters, who's really good. And he does big figures. You know, we're talking about figures in advance of a foot, you know, 30 centimeter size. But buildings and big scenes with mm -hmm. lights and everything like that and interactive, you know. And I think another model builder, excellent guy, who's done a lot of covers for modeling magazines over the years mike wallace and mike is also doing subjects like godzilla oh, he did one last year that was at wonderfest it was like an alternate reality with a pat apaches riding t-rexes 
and his his stuff is meticulous and in the sense it it derives more from the 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 military modeler point of view in that you know if you looked at marcellus's paint jobs it would be very bright and colorful uh realistic to the kaiju he's painting but but color kind of rezzed up Mm -hmm. whereas with mike mike's work mostly diorama work a lot of it is him trying to get the story told a lot of it's story yeah. you know um when you look at it it tells the story in the smallest possible space you know so he will cut a building in half and, and just have two sides of it because that will fit better in a small area other than you know he's actually done that after he's painted the building and put figures in it and everything yeah. else and then went no that's too big and you know it's sawed half of it away there's this interesting uh, half and half to it of like technical yeah. of, and when it comes to modeling there's this interesting half and half of it of the technical side and the narrative side because and and i was going to say with mike as opposed to marcellus he paints his kaiju are dull because he's painting the dust on them he's painting the things that have happened to them yeah. you know he has got more they're, they're they would look more faded but that's because he's trying to you know give the impression that they've been walking around kicking up clouds of dust yeah. and stuff like that which he does very accurately and neither of those approaches is wrong they both lead to very impressive things there's a you know, subjectivity to it yeah there's a subjectivity to it there's an approach that you have as an artist and i think you know that's one of the amazing things you know uh that that there is this yeah, and it starts with your choice of subject. You know, if you, I mean, I was fascinated with not just Gundam, but the you know the sort of sunrise robot shows from the late seventies on, mm-hmm. because to me as a science fiction fan, they reminded me so much of uh, of the the mobile suits in Starship Troopers, the book, not yeah. the movie. They don't have the suits. And I was happy when my son and I were in Japan in 2005. We went to the Bandai Toy Museum. And they had the Gundam. They had a floor devoted to Gundam at the very top. And so and that floor they started with Starship Troopers. That's so and, sick. And explained about Heinlein and how he conceived this stuff and what they were and how that was inspirational to to Gundam and, and real robots in general. That's you Yeah, know, that's, was, that's part of why I connected with mecca so much was um right there was this this thing like i told you i i grew up watching a lot of classic science fiction and it was that and it was like i loved transformers you know like i was big on those old right. cartoons like transformers and stuff right. like that and i loved giant robots and i loved classic science fiction and i discovered you know the original i you know i started with iron blooded orphans i think when it started when it came out and i discovered the original gundam and it just sort of clicked with me i'm like holy shit this is like the thing i've been looking for you know this blends my my two passions as a kid which were these 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 classic these very big large big-headed science fiction tales and then like just giant robots beating the shit out of each other and I, and I, I mean, became obsessed, and it, I, I was like, this is beautiful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Gundam is very Starship Trooper-y in the sense that it's not a good world to live in. And and the idea that war is not a good thing is made in both. Some people would say Heinlein doesn't think that. I, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people don't read Heinlein very closely. Um, they, they, in, in Starship Troopers, the novel, you're not allowed to vote. At, you, you don't have full citizenship if you haven't served in the military. 
And it, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, well, how right wing is that? Except there's a future context for that. This is an earth that has been at war with an implacable enemy for some time. Yeah. So those social, social details, it's not as simple as somebody saying, it's not like Heinlein meant, oh, yeah, nobody should be able to vote except a military man. You know, like that, that was not the point. It was part of the context. The other thing that people miss in that book and in the movie adaptations of it is that uh, men wear makeup. Yeah. And if you, you read very carefully, uh, Johnny Rico is Filipino. And you can tell that he, because of the makeup he selects, which, which implies that racism doesn't exist anymore. Because you're only told about this in terms of a character. It's only the details only slip to you in in terms of this character selecting makeup. You know, so it's one of those. I, I Einlein once once wrote, I, "I have no wish for my critics other than that they be confined in a in a Klein bottle for eternity." Um, you know what a Klein bottle is? Klein like. Um... I, I'm just going to say one of the one of the critics bit and said, "I can't believe how how you know ruthless Heinlein is that he would say that people who criticize him should be put in a bottle for all of eternity." Well, okay, a Klein bottle is a scientific concept. It's a bottle in which the 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 contents, the inside of it, is on the outside. It's like your GI tract. It's actually on the outside. Oh, when you're inside, okay. you're on the outside. And so this critic is going on about with proving Heinlein's point. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> because he's not trapped at all. He's in a climb bottle. Yeah, no, that, okay, that's, yeah, that's right. No, I'm, I'm... <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm not going to super defend Heinlein because, yeah, he was pretty right wing. Well, yeah, uh, he, but, didn't he kind of flippity flop on his political views a crap ton? Uh, well, yeah, he was quite liberal. And uh, when visiting Russia, the U-2 was shot down. And all of a sudden, all the Americans in Russia were being pulled in for questioning. Yeah. And his somewhat liberal views became very, very conservative yeah. at that point. And, and yeah, it, it, it uh, so he did flip flop somewhat and, and his books are inconsistent. I, like I said, I'm not going to defend everything that's in online, you know, it's, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of in, endorsing or defending it. It's a matter of looking at it yeah. in a, in the way it objectively, because the thing, yeah. And the thing is yeah. you, you, even comparing Gundam directly to Heinlein, it's, 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 it took surface, you know, it took those like basic details that are very, influential from starship it, it, troopers it, but it, it's the things that comprise gundam's core identity it's very progressive it's very like it's very left-leaning like it's not it's not hard I, to see i that. would say though the interesting thing is neither of them are positive about war no yeah uh, they're, they're they're both about you know the the sacrifice that's you know that's necessary um yeah you know uh so anyways it it uh gundam of course there's so many there's so many flavors at this point uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the multiverse of Gundam. Gundam. Uh, we got Wing. We got Dolo. We got Seed. We got yeah. all this, right? Where yeah. Gundam is Gundam has learned this lesson that I feel like a lot of Western franchises, I think, still haven't figured out, which is that 
they were they kind of eventually realized like oh this isn't you know we can't keep doing the same thing over and over because we're not reaching our demographic anymore gundam needed to change and to evolve and in in a lot of ways it did in some ways it's still held back i think but it is really interesting to look at through the generations how different we've gotten interpretations of that same story of gundam uh all just to kind of bring in all these different fans from different generations I mean, it's true when you look at any long-running series. I'm going to go back to Godzilla. You don't have a series that runs for so long without some ability to adapt. It's got to change. You know, it change and different. Uh, one thing I was going to say when we were talking about Godzilla early on, I, I actually am in, mostly enjoying the um, American Godzilla, especially the series they just. Did I, I actually what, haven't. Uh, I, I haven't started Monarch yet. It's it's quite good. And, and it fills in a lot of the blanks. And I think one of the things that's good about it, the whole series I'm talking about now, is that, well, yes, Godzilla's a hero. And so it's got a little bit of a, a drawback to that silly era of Godzilla. But I think if you look at Toho in the time that this has been going on, they've done Shin Godzilla. They've done Godzilla Minus One. They've also done Singularity uh, Point, the yeah. anime and the... Godzilla Planet anime, which all four of those really are pushing the envelope in terms of interpreting the character. And I think it's kind of good that, that basically the American series is doing the, the Marvel style Godzilla. I, I, it's a little, I, I'm a bit nervous about the new movie coming out based on the trailers, but based on what was in Monarch and what's come so far, they're doing a pretty good job of a heroic Godzilla yeah, and, and what that would mean, uh, and the fact that that you know that they're, they're actually a big element of the of the film so far, and particularly the TV series is well, how do we live in this change situation? We live for millions of years without having a problem with these monsters that shared the world with us, and what are we doing wrong that these monsters are now? not sharing the world very well with us how do we how do we live with godzilla and and so although on one level it's kind of comic booky i think it's both given japanese writers and directors a chance to push godzilla in ways they might not have otherwise and it's not a bad heroic series no i i, I, that, I think legendary godzilla is yeah. quite fun um yeah I, I say i say that with some worry about a trailer for the new movie but it I'll looks wait. ridiculously campy and i mean part of me part of me kind of is like yeah a little bit worried but at the same time i also kind of am a little bit surprised that looking at you know how coming even from you know all the way back to 1997 with the the, the roland emmerich was it roland emmerich who directed that film uh the matthew broderick godzilla film I think it was, but even like going all the way back to to that, Devlin, Dean Devlin and and Roland Emmerich. Yeah, that's right. But even going all the way back to that, how much there's in 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 introducing this weird niche stuff to mainstream audiences, how much of 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 a a worry there is that it's not going to be accepted. So it has to be watered down and kind of really 
have its core identity removed in order to, to have more quote unquote mass appeal. Right. And you see that really hard in like what they thought Godzilla needed to be back in 97 in order to appeal to the American public. And we kind of get that same thing with legendary, like going into 2014, the 2014 Godzilla where, yeah, it's a lot, it's trying to be very kind of grounded. And as a result, it's very slow. But in one of the huge criticisms of that movie, it's like, it's not giving us the stuff we want. And I think they're starting to really kind of grasp that a lot more with it. It's like, well, no, we are watching a giant monster film. At the end of the day, we still want to see giant monsters fight. You know what I mean? And it is kind of crazy to look at that new Godzilla vs. Kong and be like, this looks like, this looks like, like slop. Like, you know what I mean? It, it looks like it doesn't care about how realistic it is. It just, it looks cartoony almost. And to see that a major studio could take a billion dollar IP like that and not, be afraid of something like that to me but it's like you got to kind of wonder like man stuff's really changed a bit just had to uh i i suspect some of the cg in that trailer is not complete i don't think it is it doesn't look finished uh yeah some of some of the scenes look very finished and some of them look very not finished. yeah i get the feeling they, some of it was pumped out so that they would have a trailer uh but I, i'm not going to speculate too much on that because mm-hmm. I'll see the movie. I, one of the things I find, I guess, one of the things I find difficult in terms of the fan experience at this point is that there's a lot of talk about things before you see them. Yeah. And that's somewhat problematic in the sense that, you know, it. I, I, I've changed completely on what I thought something would be once I've seen the film. And so I, I'm trying, try not to get drawn too much into too much analysis of what comes before, yeah. because it, it is, it basically, it's a pit that you can waste an awful lot of time. Well, that's in, also, that's does... how you develop bias too, right? Because you could look at trailers and all this marketing yes. for a movie and you could be like, this is going to suck so bad. And then you can watch the movie and it can be fantastic, but it's like, if you're already in that mindset of like, oh, this is going to be crap because I spent all this time looking and arguing and complaining about how this looked, only to watch the movie, it's good. It's yeah. like, that you'll you'll subconsciously, you won't be able to overcome that bias you formed, and you'll just be like, nah, that was sucked, and you won't give it a fair shake. I also feel like there's a certain amount of fan ownership, which is not a bad thing. But it's not always a good thing. I, I have really vivid memories that uh, I was on a panel with uh, Anne McCaffrey back in '94, who wrote the Dragon uh, Dragon Quest series, mm-hmm. and and there was a fan club, you know, and the fan club at one point was telling her, basically saying, "This is how things work on your planet." Yeah, and and she had to go. She had to go. I really appreciate you, that you guys like my book so much. You have a fan club, but you don't tell me what's happening on Pern. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you. no, that's. I think that's and, the and, most egregious thing about modern fan culture is there's this. this yeah, it's it, like there's there's yeah. Everyone has the right definition. Get of rid it. of that one. Yeah, yeah, you know, let, let's that let's have a petition that that one doesn't exist. You know, let's let's and it's like back off, guys. Like this is a gift you get. And and you can you're free not to like it. Yeah, like, I have no, I I can't even sometimes understand why people like or dislike things. I, I certainly probably like some things that other people would not yeah, like. Yeah, same things. Um, but but the point is, while you have that freedom, you don't have the freedom to tell the creators. Yeah, like no, you were wrong. You know, it's like that's not how it works. So I, it it is one of those weird things where I've I've kind of got to like 
yeah, you know, I, I, I don't mind spinning fan theories either, but I don't go. There gets oh, to that be a point where it reaches like like a sense of entitlement. You know what I mean? Where it's like it, it's like no, because this is somebody yeah. else's. This is somebody else's project. This is their passion project. This is their love child. You know what I mean? And this is they've put all this work into it. Yeah, and it's like it, it, you're 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 coming at it from a point of your own bias and you're not trying to see things from the perspective of the artist who's giving you this thing. So you're never going to fully appreciate it. And you're totally, totally, you know, it's fine for you to, to say, I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how you feel. Uh, although I have found very often things that I haven't liked I have over time, sometimes a short time, sometimes a long time, uh, come to actually appreciate them uh, quite a bit. Yeah. So that things change. You know, there's context with what you were expecting and what you wanted and what you got. And, and sometimes it, it takes a short time and sometimes it takes a very long time to kind of go, you know, that's actually pretty good. It's just not what I wanted. Yeah. You know, Um and and it, it 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 seems that people are a bit closed off to that. Yeah. Like they want to negate things now. They want to say, oh, well, that would never happen. That doesn't happen. I don't think that happens. So get rid of that. You know, it's like I don't want to go into Star Wars fandom because. No, I Star Wars. Well, you can't but, have this discussion, I feel like, without mentioning Star Wars because it's the it's the yeah. hotbed of why this is such an important discussion now because of those. You know, even dating back to the prequels, it was a huge argument, but especially now with the sequels and the Disney movies, you know, there's such a schism in what people think or or believe Star Wars should be, and for some reason that directly conflicts with other... Like, I don't like the sequels. Like, I, I've been very vocal about that. I think they're lazy. My issues with the sequels aren't on a on a, you know, a fundamental level. It's more so that I just think that they're lazy. Like, that's... Right? It's not that there's like, oh, no, they, they should... They sh they didn't do this, 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 and this right. Like, this is not how accurate to the Force. It's like, no, because if the Force is a, is a narrative tool, like anything else in a story, it's used to benefit the narrative. And as long as it does that, I don't care if it doesn't align with how it works in this piece of media. As long as it works for the story it's in. I... I, um... I was going to say, I'm technically, I dislike the prequels far more than I, I, I like the, most of the sequels with some reservations that I will mention, but I really dislike the prequels. However, th those are the prequels on their own. Yeah. There's been a long time since the prequels and that imaginative territory has been mapped out in a lot of detail since. Yeah. So when you go back to the prequels now, you don't go back to the same thing you went back to in 1997 because there was not dozens, dozens of hours of what happened in the clone wars with Anakin. Yeah. You know, and so imaginatively you actually can't go back to how you felt. You know, if you want to go George Lucas through my childhood, you can't yeah. go back to how you felt back then because it's not, because that story has been contextualized in a way that makes I appreciate them more because I have grandchildren. Yeah. And my grandchildren really like the films. Uh, so, so that kind of, you know, made them not as problematic. The, the, the sequel films, my biggest problem is they didn't have a plan. Yeah. In terms of what the three films would be. So I actually, The Last Jedi. I actually like what that movie is trying to do. 
I like the concept. But, yeah. but the problem is then the next movie just negates it all to go back to what was going to happen in the first place. And it's like, okay, you can't, like you can't write three movies without some kind of a plan. I mean, I, I know George didn't really have a developed outline, no. but he did have a plan in his head. Yeah. You know, well, it's the thing is you get the I, sense George Lucas is a real writer in that sense, because he's, he's not just writing this as like his day job, you know, star Wars was, was that thing that every nerd has in their head that they, they think about, right. It's his own little story. Every nerd's got one, yeah. right. When you're building a model or whatever, I, I you're, you're imagining the narrative constantly. And yeah, I George. I think that's was why the huge... first three worked so well. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's that's okay. Why the first we're three worked so well because he's really he had really imagined it in mm. a sense that it was all there. Whereas the prequels, I think it was like a job he had to do. Yeah. He had mixed feelings about, and he was not quite clear on what he was doing. So there are there are some pretty serious missteps I, I i do want to point out that george reminds me a lot of ray harryhausen mm-hmm. in the sense that i think as time went on his story sense got weaker but his pushing forward a film as a medium yeah is is his real significance i would agree 100 percent because you know? he, he pioneered a lot of stuff especially working on the prequels with with um yeah. with you know the, the audio yeah. engineering and with uh his work with yeah, ilm yeah. Yeah. and in defining what they became in the 2000s yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. incredible un, un, unbelievable contribution to film although i mean you know story-wise howard the duck radio land murders uh red tails He's Red Tails is, is uh, holy people. shit. Strange Magic? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever seen Strange Magic? I, I'm telling you, for me, no, but Howard the Duck, man. Howard oh, the Duck man. is bad, but dude, it, no, you're going to watch Strange Magic and it's going to open a third eye. You're going to be like, I didn't know it could get this bad. <laughs> that okay. that movie well, that movie is insane. Problem, I actually think Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck is brilliant. Uh-huh. But but the people who made the movie had no clue what they were doing. Oh yeah, no, like, I, I, oh, I agree. Funny, 100%. I mean, yeah. you know, and and yeah. But anyhow, you know, all that aside, let's not take away from George's contribution to yeah. filmmaking because it's unbelievable. Well, I I feel you like know, and, and those first three. Sorry, I was going to say, I feel like going back to those first three films, like you said, like, yeah, he didn't have an outline because any writer who who starts writing a story and immediately knows where it's going to go, like that's a lie because essentially art is it's a living like you know through your medium you're creating a living thing basically yeah because as you grow you don't work on something for five years and have it be exactly the same as what you had in your head when you started making it because you're going to change and your art is is a reflection of your experiences it's just something about the human condition and your five years of growth is going to reflect you're going to come back to your piece with a hindsight or with a foresight or a hindsight that you didn't have before you be like it makes more sense if i do this and I'm sure he knew how the story was going to go. She knew, always knew that Darth... He probably always wanted the thing to be that Darth Vader was going to be, like, the secret underling, and that there was going to be a battle with the Emperor at the end. Like, I'm sure he always had that in mind. But it's the little things that change along the way. Now, it... it, it so, going back to fandom in general, and we, I see it in Godzilla fandom now, because it's, so, it's grown so big now that it's, you know... 
a big active fandom or Star Trek fandom or anything else. Mm-hmm. Or, or you can see you can see these same things we're talking about in any fandom because it's just it's not the thing itself. It's just what happens yeah. when people come together, right? Like, yeah, and and it it and, and because of the weird political nature of the world right now, there's there's a lot of discussion about story that is discussion about politics. Uh, when it comes to female characters, when it comes to um, characters from different races and things like that, mm-hmm. where it's really more about accepting that there's diversity or not, you know, and, and I, I'm finding that kind of wearying too, because it's one of those things where it's like, okay, you know, if a character is black, the character is black, that's good it's it's for you know for, i'm a film teacher too so you know one of the big things we talk about is representation and one of the good things is it's good to see yourself represented in film so that means it's good to have a diversity of types of characters because it means that more people feel they're represented by what they see on the screen and it also means that other people might gain some insight into what it's like to be somebody else and I, I get weary of how political a lot of the fan discussions are you know like disney you know is like i'm just i'm i'm getting really weary it, you know, but, I, i'm in that boat too it's exhausting having to see this yeah. the same the same argument be repeated constantly and most of the time it's like the people having these discussions aren't coming at it from from a relatable perspective they're coming at it from either one end of the spectrum or the other, an extremely biased perspective. And it just, it, it doesn't feel like there's any actual dialogue there. It doesn't feel like anything's actually being accomplished, you know what I mean? It feels like two kind of sides of the coin being thrown at each other. It's like, can you, can we just all take a step back and look at this kind of naturally and understand? It's like, it, it, for some people, it's just hard to accept that it's different. And it's yeah. just a matter of I mean, accepting you know, diversity and and being well, able it, to explore viewpoints. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Yeah. It's like, it's like oh, a, you know... It's a double-sided I've, I've coin like anything, everything. though. Right? Like, you got that, well, but no, it's not I, like I, I agree. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure... I know you do. It's just yeah. like, the thing I, is, right, I, is I, everybody I, will, will take that and, and use it as an excuse and run with it because it's like, yeah, ultimately, when it comes to, to film there's an artistic side to it and there's a business side to it and those two have to they have to both exist with the way the world is with the way the economy is with everything right. we live in in a in a capitalist society right so art can't flourish if there's no money in it sadly like that's just the sad reality so there has to be compromises made on that and so essentially like it's it, the problem with this 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 I hate the word woke like I hate it because it's just a buzzword it's just something people throw around when they're just frustrated or upset with something and it doesn't really mean anything and it's like the problem yeah, with that I argument mean, it, it tends to be um yeah it's like politically correct used to be it's it's an argument that isn't really an argument. Yeah, it's putting the person who feels differently in a bucket. You know, you're in this bucket, and that's why you think what you think, rather than talking about what you're actually talking about. Pretty much, you know, yeah. the, whatever. There, there's a black character in Star Wars, and he's a main character. Oh, well, how's that a bad thing? You know, it's sort of like, well, you're so woke, and it's like, okay, you're not really talking about what you're seeing. You're talking about some other political yeah. notion it's generic and and you're right it, it it it's from both sides there's a kind of intolerance 
that can can occur there where you want to go uh, where i my problem is it's like it comes back to the whole idea about trying to unwrite a film that what you get in a film or what you get in a book is you get somebody's creative interpretation of the world yeah which you're free to disagree with but but it didn't used to be oh so this should now be obliterated yeah you know, like that we should, we should have a we should now have a you know a vote and you should take the, make this uncanonical and it's like give forget it like stop that you're allowed not to like something you're not allowed to wish it out of existence like particularly that. if for either political spectrum you're in why you want to wish it out of existence is it's uncomfortable for you yeah that might be a good thing that ultimately might be a good thing for you that you're made uncomfortable you know like you know you, so it it's i i find it really weird there's a really level. unfortunate side to it because when you look at us, I mean, we got to go back to Star Wars because it's like the, it's been the heart of this debate for the last ten years. Like when you go back to Marvel, Marvel, Marvel too, Marvel too. Yeah, yeah, but it's like when you yeah. go back to it, it's like essentially the problem with yeah. that is when you come, we're talking about this thing where it's like, yeah, fan vote, obliterate this from canon. This is disrespect of the lore. This is disrespect of the legacy. Is yeah, yeah. It, it's it's not one. It's not the fans necessarily positioned to decide that but the problem is now is that these these franchises have gotten so big they've surpassed any single artist's vision or any single artist's beliefs they've become corporate entities right so at that point that's when the money talks and they and they go where the money is and that's when you you lose the story having any of its core values other thing that's happened is that I would say starting around the time of um, Harry and and Ain't It Cool news, that the studios suddenly discovered that a fan site was a way to promote a film. Yeah, in a way that had not had not existed before. So the studios are partially to blame for this because by making the internet a place to sell you're engaging people in a discourse that is that seems more like a discourse it's not like a you suddenly see a poster and let's go see this movie yeah you're you're you know you're fed all, these all, details all press is good press right it. yeah yeah and and so i'm not blaming this entirely on the fandom because i think part of the problem is the way it's it been it's been engineered to a degree. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it it uh, God we we sh sure should be talking about models and not not going down the rabbit hole of something that we will never solve. Uh, but but uh, yeah, I mean I, I do despair sometimes that people don't take work in it for what it is. It, it's what they want it to be, mm -hmm. and that's fine. But. Honestly, the truth is, if you want something to be something other than it is, you should make a movie. Yeah. You should write a book. You should draw a comic. You should you, you should not waste your time criticizing what somebody else did. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah I mean, fair enough. You do it a bit. I don't like that anymore. Fine. But you should go and do the thing that you think should yeah, be Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And you took all that the, negative energy and you funneled it into something yeah. that actually, yeah. you know, reflected the way you felt, yeah. then you might have something better to come out of it. Yeah, as opposed to let's let's make that uncanonical. Let's, you know, have a boycott. It's a lot of, of um, whatever. 
it's a yeah it's a lot it's just it's it's a i think it's a result of just like over it's it's a lot of things but i think overconsumption is just a huge part of it because people are so used to especially now with how the rate at which we consume media right there's just this belief that it's kind of all catered towards us yeah and it's well and and yeah it it's also like the myth of of expectations mm -hmm. i mean i think marvel's been having problems because because nobody could ever have expected or or actually planned that the whole infinity war thing would work yeah that was more an accident than planning that's like a happy accident oh well we can try crossing over like the movies oh well we could try a single villain who's behind oh we could do like the summer event as a movie and that all happened and it was like and it worked yeah but it's highly unlikely it will ever work again yeah i agree because a lot of it's a happy accident so you know to some degree everybody's been expecting and now there's going to be this brand new and it's going to be different first of all which seems to be a problem for a lot of people it's going to have different characters which seems to be a lot problem for a lot of people but ultimately i mean i'm a comic book reader i've read a lot of summer crossover events like they're not all good, man. No, a lot of them are. Well, that's the thing is, like, they're kind of they're 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 kind of just buzzword thing where it's like, oh, Spider Man meets Doctor Strange. And it's like, well, yeah, what's it about? Yeah, it's about Spider Man meeting Doctor Strange. You know? It's like, yeah, but what's it about? Yeah. yeah, besides, yeah, besides the fact that the the whole genre has a problem in that the third act, unless they're very clever, is always the same third act. Yeah, it's a big fight between the principles. And that's a tough thing for a genre. Even monsters, it, even though it tends that way, it, it doesn't have to feel quite like that in the same way that superheroes have a tendency to go yeah. to, yeah, now it's the big battle finish, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it, it, it's a problem for that genre. But but anyhow, I, I, I think <laughs> we're not going to solve this one. Nah. So I, I, I don't know if we should expend much more energy i don't know we, have we talked about models enough is anybody still listening to us oh i'm sure you know? i'm sure somebody's still around well the point of this 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 podcast isn't just to be a modeling podcast like i made that very apparent the idea is that we, know, we were taking I... people in and around because there's a thing is we've talked about this and i think we've already proven this through our discussion it connects to everything right scale modeling is not just something we we yeah. put we pump two hours a day into it it doesn't go anywhere it affects every facet of our lives we don't do it by chance right we do it because it connects with us and with everything else that connects with us, right? You're you're not just a scale model. You're the, a sci-fi fan. You're a film fan. You're an anime fan. You're all these things. You're an artist. Yeah, I'm a film teacher too. Mm -hmm. You know, which is like professionally what I get paid the most for. Exactly. You right. know, and and it it uh, you know one of the reasons this all happened was because I wanted to. I mean, literally, that's how Aurora justified the Frankenstein kit. Because the guy who came up with the Frankenstein kit, everybody, including the people at Aurora, said, you're crazy. And and Aurora, I think, for a long time was embarrassed by the fact. They, they always wanted their, their cars and their planes to do better. But it was like the monsters that were doing all the business for them. And, and I mean, the original con conceiver of that, and i sorry, I can't remember his name right now. But one of the things they said was, well, look, there's a psychological reason for these monster movies. Because it's a scary thing, but it's a scary thing that is built by a child. And it, um, in this case, and now adults. It's built by someone. And that means they contain it. It's their creative um, product. 
it's you know the monster doesn't live in their closet anymore they yeah. built the monster and it sits on the shelf so there's there is this psychological thing that that for me i mean i became i i probably became a film teacher because i was a model builder yeah you know certainly because i was a science fiction fan you know a monster movie fan but probably because i was a model builder because that's was my input into this at the beginning was you know with without the resources to make film in those days, I guess I could have got an eight millimeter camera, but, 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 uh, my connection was I can build these things, you know, yeah. especially when Godzilla came out, I can build Godzilla and Godzilla can be on my shelf. Now, sadly, when I look around me where I'm sitting here, that means there's more Godzillas than I actually can count <laughs> in this house. I, I used to keep count, but when it became somewhat over a hundred, I, my, my, my darling wife was, I felt like I was kind of rubbing her nose in it when I would say, well, I've got like blah, 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 <laughs> you know, and it was like, okay, I got to stop this because, uh, you know, I stop collecting Godzilla. I still do, but you know, stop it because Katie, I, I don't have to, you know, sort of like, yeah, she's lost control of me. I don't know what I'm saying here. I just, out of the, it just out of didn't the seem right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyhow, but I mean, it, it um, being able to build things is really, you know, it, it's a good, it, it's a creative outlet, but it's also a sense of ordering the world and, you know, and, and having some ability to bring those things you love into three dimensional life. Yeah. You know, no, so, I, mean, I, I agree. I uh, think there's, so, um, there's an element of that where we're talking about, um, it, there's an element of control to, to, to it and why we do it, right? Is is there's It's a way it's a to feel like to you have some control. Too. Yeah. And you do it and it's, it's kind of like... Too. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, it's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, it's all the stuff we grew up with, right? It's stuff that we're fascinated by. And when we bring it into this world, into this, this scale world, that's when we have control over it. That's when we get to define it. And, and yeah, there's like a totally psychological element. So it's like why a kid would build a monster or why, you know, an adult would build a Gundam from a show he watched when he was a teenager or something like that. Right. Um, there's a, there's a certain element of I've built this and I'm showing it to you because it's cool. Yeah. We, <laughs> can, we can talk about why. Yeah. You know, but I uh, like that. That scale modeling can open up this larger discussion though, because it just it goes to prove it's, it's not just, you know, it's not just a bunch of grown men like playing with toys, but it, it is that, that is what it is. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. Right. It, it goes. I, I mean, the, 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 the Wonderfest in North America, the, I, I went for the first time last June and, um, it's just amazing in terms of like there there were over a thousand models, all science fiction and fantasy subjects on the tables, uh, scratch built stuff, original pieces, uh, just immaculately done dioramas and, and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in terms of creativity, the people who are at that convention, the third season of Picard had come out and and that spaceship, I forget the name of it now. That, I actually that, didn't watch that, season three. It, okay, well, that, that spaceship that's in it was actually a, 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 a what if at Wonderfest. Wow. Created by the one of the guys who was a production designer. And they went with that in terms of, oh, well, this could be Picard's ship. So last year he was back with a with a 
one that more accurately represented what was on screen. You know, it had gone from his concept on the table of the model show to the concept of the show and back to here's a here's a more accurate version of what you saw in the show. Wow. You know, and so hanging out with I mean, last year was the 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 anniversary of Return of the Jedi. So they had the model model building crew from Return of the Jedi were guests. God, that's, and, that and, sounds you know, incredible. There was a point at which, yeah, I, you know, I got invited out, you know, to supper with some guys and one of the guys had built, you know, models for Firefox and for Galactica. And my friend, Eric, it was a designer on the new Galactica. So part of the time hanging with him is always good to get in a group. One of the guys was the guy who was in charge of, of, um, of of the 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 remastering of Star Trek the motion picture the director's cut in HD because for a long time they thought they couldn't afford it so he mm-hmm. was he was there they were t- a guy from NASA was there who was a uh, specialist in telescopes both ground based and space based um, another guy who was sitting with us had been you know building all this Irwin Allen stuff and and but his professional job was making props and stuff like that. And, you know, it turned into a conversation about they were all, they had all seen the, the enterprise at the, at, you know, the, the air and space museum in, you know, the, the Smithsonian. And they were talking about, could they fix it up enough that they could actually use it digitally to recreate some of the scenes in the film instead of, you know, doing them, you know, always just a joy to be at that table. That sounds and, like and, that sounds like a galaxy brain conversation. I would like I would have given anything to be in the middle of that. And the thing about that conversation is, it's like the conversations you have in a model club, you know, except that the people at the table had the wherewithal to actually. One of the other guys was actually in the werewolf by night thing. I know he was an actor, but I think he was also a director in it. I'd have to check that. Oh, that's you know, cool. so it's it's like. It's just like, yeah, you're sitting with a bunch of creative people, but that conversation is not so different from any conversation you have in a model club where you're sitting with a bunch of creative people. Like yeah. I say, that it's different wherewithal. You know, they you don't have the money to, to redo, you know, the, the Star Trek the motion picture, which I'm so glad they did. It was like my my was thank you so much for doing that because that director's cut has beautiful stuff in it. I'm glad they, they finally did the HD. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. So, so yeah, so it, it's, it's, it, that's kind of wonderful, you know, like it's a big, and, and it really is, there isn't a, a cutoff point for creativity. Those same people who are working, say professionally in film or working professionally in, in, uh, there's another point where a guy from NASA was introduced to me. He said, you, you were saying you had dinner with another guy from NASA. And I go, yeah, this guy was a doctor and he didn't know the guy who was the telescope specialist. And and it was trying to figure out who he was. Could I introduce him to him? It was like I'm sorry, I just had supper with him. You know, like I don't really know him. But but the the whole you know the group of people who are there, you know, artists and you know, and there's a whole spectrum from people who are just getting started to to people who are super professional to people who are professional. And I guess yeah. professional is a hard thing to define. You know, in in the sense that like I'm I'm writing an article for Amazing Figure Modeler right now. It's like the artist thing. Am I professional? Yeah, sure. I'm writing an article. I'm not going to get paid for it. But but I've been asked by the editor to write it. So, yeah. yeah. 
Well, uh, bye, uh, bye. I think we've hit two hours and 30 minutes, so we should think about uh, starting to wind down here. Because I know I know we could keep going. No problem. I know we could keep going. Yeah, and, no, and we, like, we totally could, but uh, we got to keep the show at a reasonable length. No, and, you got you got you got to cut down. I, that's that's no problem at all. Um, I, I, I can I can always stop talking. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> here's the thing. You can always come back on. This isn't no like this isn't if you ever want to come back on if you well, enjoyed it right this is not a one and done deal because we're gonna do other stuff in the future we'll have other guests on and we'll have returning hey, I'm guests. Tell, so. tell any run run uh, it was just fun talking with you yeah so if you have yeah it'd be good if it's if it if it's a more focused subject because the problem is I'm meandering all <laughs> well that's kind of what this show has been so far you know what's funny is. We, I, I'm realizing this as as this episode's going on. We've talked about a lot of very similar topics as we did in episode one with me and Hal. But I, I enjoyed that in a sense of right. it, it's the same stuff we're talking about, but you get such a different perspective on it. Because yeah, I think a lot of the same viewpoints are shared, but in the sense that you'll be able to go on and stay like we talk, we, me and Hal, I think we, I brought, I brought up Star Trek the motion picture. But with you in this case, it's like well, you were talking about the, you know, the, the guys working on the remaster of it and we're talking about fixing up the original enterprise and, and stuff like that. Right. So it's, it's really fun to see the parallels on how we all kind of think similarly about these things, but how much different perspective you can get. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, I, and I do think it's, it's important to remember, I'm going to just briefly that, that, you know, considering yourself an artist or considering yourself a professional, I think it's more important that you're on this creative journey then you're thinking about how you rate on the creative journey. Yeah. Because my my feeling is anytime I've met people who are extremely creative, you can have the same conversation you can have at any club meeting, you know, because you're both interested in those kinds of things. And and evaluating your status is not as important as having fun and talking about Exactly. You know, and, and Coming up with plans. That's the core That's of the what we're talking thing. about here, right? It was at the end of the day. We're just yeah. nerds. We're nerds who like something, and we take it seriously because it's fun to us. Not because there's money in it, not because there's fame yeah. in it, but because it's something that we are passionate about, and we wanted a way that we could connect with it personally. And we've yeah. all found these different outlets, you know, That's modeling, right. writing, through, through fandom, all these different ways that we can explore and deepen these connections we form with all these other artists, right? It's the core of it. That's the, the artistic journey is it's not a, it's not a ladder you're climbing up, right? It's not a mountain you're climbing. You yeah. And it's not one where a, you have you to evaluate yourself. It's really good. to. It's really good to remember that everybody ultimately is similar. You know, it's easier to talk to people if you talk to them as people and you don't think of them as your gods, you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, because, that gets in the way, you know, um, and it it really is, you know, it's it's really helpful that you you go. What we're doing here is we're sharing this love of stuff, and you know that's that's fine. You know, exactly. you will agree with some people, you won't, but it's much either easier to get on with it if you just are, you know, being creative. So, yeah, exactly. That's the core of what we're doing here. Yep. So we can we can uh, we can do that for now. Cool. Um. I have been Ronan. This is uh, Hobby Set Go. This is episode two, and I think we've uh, we've had a pretty great uh, second episode. I, I'd like to. Whoa! What was that? Um, did you sneeze? Stan? Oh. Um, 
Did you I, I, I don't know. I, 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 just, I don't know. That scared I, me. I didn't hear any sound here. I got afraid for a second. It sounded like you sneezed or something. Um, nope. All right. I, weird. I would admit to it if I sneezed. Weird. Okay. Well, yeah, I wonder if there's any kind of kind of rotating myself in my chair, but I can't hear anything being produced by that, but I don't know. Maybe mm. weird. Yeah. I don't know. Um, anyways. Yeah. I've been Ronan. This is uh, hobby set go episode two. Um, I've had a wonderful time talking to you, Stan. Um, everybody check, uh, Stan out. You can, uh, monster attack team on Facebook group. Um, where else can they find a you? monster attack team? Can I, can I just clarify? Yeah. Monster attack team hyphen international as a facebook group yeah there's also facebook Monsterland, which is all japanese stuff and kaiju and the, and the problem is there's monsters in all these groups and there's also uh monster fighters international headquarters which is like not just japanese monsters it's everything so there's actually three monster attack team hyphen international it's all about models monster hunters international headquarters about all kinds of monsters facebook monster land is kind of like like it says monster land on the internet um you know godzilla and friends yeah awesome well uh that's been our show for tonight i hope you've enjoyed um feel free to reach out uh if you like the episode if you want to talk about anything um i'm ronan you'll be able to find me on instagram uh and yeah thank you for watching and that's our show good night